Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, we have a full house, and I know it's not here because of me. It's a, it's a, <laughs> so thank you for being here. So we're going to start with some preliminary matters before we get to um, the more interesting presentations. So uh, the first item is item number one, preliminary matters. We have 10 resolutions to approve this morning. We'll do the first nine together and then the last one separately. So the first one is the Tregoning property number 12023-0120 MCPB number 23-118. The second is the Tregoning property Forest Conservation Plan F20230420 MCPB number 23119. The third is 1415 Mount Nebo Road Subdivision Plan 620230130 MCPB number 23-121. The fourth is 14915 Mount Nebo Road Forest Conservation Plan F20230420 MCPB number 23-122. The fifth is Buck Lodge Track 1980932A MCPB number 23-130. The sixth is 7749 Old Georgetown Road Sketch Plan number 320. 240010 MCPB number 230131. Seven is retail shops 15504 New Hampshire Avenue preliminary plan 11999-1008 MCPB number 23-132. The eighth is retail shops 15504 New Hampshire Avenue Forest Conservation Plan F20230130 MCPB number 23-134. The ninth is pursuant to remand adoption of Georgia Avenue Sketch Plan number 320230020 resolution MCPB number 23-137. Do I have a motion for approval? Yeah, move to approve the resolutions. I second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The last resolution is Garnick Farms Preliminary Plan Number One Two Zero Zero Eight O Two Four A MCPB Number Twenty Three Dash One Three Five. All can vote except uh, Commissioner Bartley. Do I have a motion for approval? Move for approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. The second is approved. Can I make one quick yeah, comment? Yes, please. That's okay. I just wanted to point out that the, the resolution for the George Avenue remand, um, it does include references to cases and legal provisions that Mr. Mills um, cited in his, in his presentation to the board last week. Um, I also wanted to note that there was substantial attendance at the pre-submission meeting. Um, so both of these things are just helpful in understanding our, our findings and the board's uh, mm -hmm. analysis and reasoning last week. So well, thanks. Thank, thank you for presenting that. Thank you. Uh, we'll move on to approval of minutes. Uh, we have two minutes of November 2nd, 2023 and November 30th, 2023, and then closed session minutes of November 2nd, 2023 and November 30th, 2023. Do I have a motion for approval? Motion to approve the minutes. I second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. And our third item, we have to do independently, each one independently. There are three extension requests. 
The first is Limero Administrative Preliminary Plan Number 62023-0100, Regulatory Review Extension Request Number 1, where staff is recommending approval to the extension request. Is there a motion for approval? I move to approve. All second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes Aye. have it. The second is 12700 Travila Road Preliminary Plan Number 12022-0120, Extension Request Number 1, where staff is recommending approval of the extension. Do I have a motion for approval? I move for approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. The last is Milestone Center Walmart Site Plan Amendment Number 81994091, Regulatory Extension Request Number 2. Do I have where staff is recommending approval of the extension request? Do I have a motion for approval? I move to approve the request. All second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Thank you so much. So now we're going to move on to the roundtable discussion, the Parks Director's Report. But before we do that report, I have an important presentation to make. So, so Mike, can you come maybe sit next to your wife? So good morning again. I have a, a proclamation here from the board. And so it starts out by first, you always have to do the regulatory. So they, hear ye, hear ye, okay? <laughs> this is a resolution from the board. Whereas Mike Riley has served the residents of Montgomery County for 39 years, beginning his career at Montgomery Parks, part of the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, as a humble civil and environmental engineer and rising to the position of parks director. And whereas Mike Riley first mastered the skills of precision and attention to detail while working in a donut assembly line and learned adaptability and resilience from jobs as an emu feeder and a gas station attendant, while scraping grease off elevator cables may seem like a distant memory, these early experiences laid the foundation for the hard work, determination, and problem-solving abilities that define Mike's career in public service. And whereas over four decades as a civil and environmental engineer at Montgomery Parks, Mike Riley has personally witnessed the advent of modern environmental sustainability practices and regulations. To wit, one of his first projects was to fill in wetlands to build a soccer field. And then later years, he oversaw the removal of that same field and the restoration of the original environmental resource. And whereas Mike Riley is the only parks director to hold a Maryland professional engineering license, which he proudly banishes to colleagues, residents, and other governmental agencies or elected officials at any level. And whereas Mike Riley has captured the great vessel of the SS Montgomery Parks, 
through some of its strongest headwinds and stormiest nights, including the pre-dawn hours in late June 20, 2006, when water began emerging at the base of Lake Needwood, and he was thrust before national television cameras to calm fears and instill confidence. That's Mike. Mike has met this challenge head on and stood watch over a massive operation to protect and restore the integrity of this high hazard dam in the heart of Montgomery County. After which more than 2,000 residents were able to safely return to their homes to celebrate the 4th of July with their families. And whereas Mike Riley's legacy includes the 2022 PROS plan, which establishes the framework for an equitable park system that creates opportunities for social connection, environmental activity, and protects our environmental resources. And whereas Mike Riley led projects both big and small, including Maryland Soccerplex, the Johia Henson Museum, North Four Corners Local Park, the Visitor Center at Brookside Gardens, and the Shirley Povich Field. And whereas Mike Riley leaves Montgomery Parks as one of its biggest advocates, having managed more than 400 parks, 37,000 acres, and a parks family of over 1,100 people, all of you. Under his leadership, Montgomery Parks was awarded a six gold medal for best in the nation from the American Academy for Park and Recreation Administration, an unprecedented record that is still held today. And whereas Mark Grayley has served as the unofficial storyteller of the park system, and we're looking forward to reading his tell-all bestseller <laughs> about his time at the commission. And whereas those of us who have had the pleasure to work with and get to know Mike are so better for it. Therefore, be it resolved that the Montgomery County Planning Board of the National Capital Park and Planning Commission hereby express the commission's admiration and appreciation to Mike for 39 years of outstanding service and dedication to the commission and wishes him the very best of health and happiness in the years to come. From the Montgomery County Planning Board, December 21, 2023. Congratulations, Mike.
would you like us to move on to the uh, Parks Director yeah, Roundtable? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. this is the Parks Director Roundtable. And, and I have uh, some slides that yes, I'll be please. moving through. Okay. Um, so uh, this would have been today uh, Mike's last um, Parks Director's Roundtable with the Planning Board, but the staff and I decided that we were going to um, do a little takeover, stage a coup, if you will. And with the um, help of Dominique Carlo, um, we put together some, some slides to walk you through that will just give me an opportunity to talk about Mike and maybe make him feel a little bit sheepish, um, you know, because we're trying to take every opportunity we can to, to, to give Mike the, the send-off he deserves. So this opening slide, I think you can see here um, the, uh, the, that this picture is uh, emblematic of the, the dignity and the gravity that Mike brought to his role as Parks Director. Um, all kidding aside, this is basically what he told me the job would be, and that's why I applied. So I'm going to hold everyone to that. Um, here we've got a little uh, timeline of Mike's um, 39 years now with the commission. He graduated from college in 1985 from Clarkson University with a bachelor's in civil and environmental engineering. His sister uh, cut out from the Washington Post an ad for a civil engineer with the commission, and Mike applied for that job. He interviewed for seven jobs. He got four job offers. It's pretty good. He picked the lowest paying job. <laughs> But I think he did that because um, he knew that a career designing and building parks would be truly rewarding. I doubt he knew when he took this job that it would be 39 years, but, but here we are. Here we are. It was a good decision. Um, subsequently, he um, was promoted pretty steadily. Um, by 2001, he was uh, chief of PDD. I think this board is all familiar with Andy Frank, our current uh, division chief for PDD, and, and that's the job that Mike Riley used to have. Um, in 2007, he became the deputy director um, under Mary Bradford, and he was appointed in 2014 um, our parks director here in Montgomery Parks. Um, so Mike has given over the course of his almost 10 years as parks director, um, give or take, you know, a few, over 200 different planning board roundtable reports. Um, we very carefully crunched the data on that. And basically it's twice a month, 11 months out of the year, because we don't do this in August for like nine years, roughly comes to about 200. So Mike did this a lot. This is my first one. Um, it turns out, you guys, that uh, beerologist is a real term. It's a term for somebody who is a, basically a beer enthusiast. And one of the things that um, Mike, I think, is proud of is that in his uh, tenure as parks director, he approved more um, liquor licenses to serve beer at parks events than any director previously. And, and this is a good thing. Because In, including the one for my retirement party that I'm going to approve today go. at Brookside. There you go. Um, this is good because this is, we want people to come into our parks and you know, enjoy themselves, have a beer on a beautiful day with their friends and family and neighbors. And um, it's all part of the, 
the environment of joy and fun and connection that we're trying to um, create in Montgomery Park. So I will try to pick up that mantle and approve many more licenses. Um, so, wrong thing. Um, all right, so we went through um, some of Mike's performance evaluations over the years, and I, I think you all know that like once a year, your supervisor um, rates you on a scale and then has the opportunity to say some words in writing, to put down some, some, some uh, words to kind of um, uh, tell you what kind of a year you had and how you performed over the last year. And so I just want to read a couple of these to you because I think they're worth hearing out loud. Um, in 2004, Les Straw, who was then the superintendent of parks, um, told, said uh, in Mike's performance evaluation, <clears throat> I believe this has been a very good year for this division and Mr. Riley. I appreciate his hard work, attention to detail, and good nature. And I think if you know Mike, that's pretty much on point. Um, in 2008, uh, Mary Bradford, director at the time, wrote that Mr. Riley is the sort of individual who consistently rises to the challenge of whatever is placed before him and can be relied upon to tackle it with the thoroughness and precision of an engineer, but also with increasing flexibility in the face of uncertain outcomes. For these reasons, my evaluation of Mike Riley is that he is an exemplary professional, a credit to this department and to the commission, and I therefore rate him highly across all categories. I think we can all agree with that assessment, too. So one of the, the privileges that Mike has had over the years um, is, well, he, he approves a lot of the purchases the Parks Department makes. And a lot of them are, you know, what they're prosaic. They're mundane, right? The kind of supplies everybody has to order and approve. But, but some of them are pretty special. Um, and so we pictured some of them here. You can see that Mike has purchased a train. He's purchased a carousel. Um, a pump track, a sawmill, a climbing wall, I think that's a Zamboni, uh, some kayaks, and, and there's a drone, and then of course, um, I think her name is Penny. She is the dog at Brookside who um, chases away the geese, and by all accounts, she's a very good girl. I see Chief McSwain here, don't forget guns and tasers. Yeah, I, I, we won't forget that. Um, so here are some pictures of Mike at ribbon cuttings over the years. You know, the job of parks director, even though Mike always made it look easy, um, it's long hours. Sometimes it's stressful. Sometimes people um, are unhappy with the status of a project. Something might be over budget or maybe now and then run late, even though we make every effort for that not to happen. Sometimes somebody's unhappy with the condition of their park. But... It's all worth it when you go to the ribbon cutting and you see the happy faces of the children as they play on that playground for the very first time. You see the elected officials and the residents who get an opportunity to see what it is that we do for them with the resources that they give us and how, how hard we work to deliver for them. And so Mike has always loved those events. And, and among his words of wisdom to me has always been, remember this when things are hard. Remember that this is why we do this job. Uh, some of his major projects, um, as the chair, um, you know, uh, outlined in that resolution, um, the Brookside Gardens Visitor Center, um, the Soccerplex, North Four Corners Park, but there are hundreds of projects that Mike had a hand in over the 39 years 
um, from his first role as a civil, a lowly civil engineer, none of them are lowly, um, up to being the, the parks director. We, there is so much in our system that exists because Mike had a hand in it. And then here we just have some pictures um, of Mike with um, parks staff. And I want to highlight this for you because I think you can see in everyone's face how, um, how they feel about Mike, what uh, Mike has meant to park staff over the years. He has been uh, an exemplary public servant, and his staff have the utmost regard and affection for him. He sets the standard. His decency, integrity, good humor, and commitment to doing the right thing even when it's hard, because that's what he's paid to do, is something that we should all strive for. He's been a role model for me, and I think I can speak for our staff when I say that having him at the helm has been a source of comfort, confidence, and stability for all of us. So I just want to say um, happy retirement, Mike. And thank you for everything you've done for the Parks Department and for the residents of Montgomery County for the last 39 years. We are all very grateful. Wow. Uh, uh, thank you. I'm really overwhelmed, and this is where I get to practice holding it together for my retirement party. <laughs> um, that was wonderful, Mitty. Thank you and everybody who put those pictures together. It was an incredible trip down memory lane. Uh, thank you, Artie and the board. The proclamation was the most personalized, uh, genuine proclamation I've ever heard. Uh, quite often when you hear people read all those whereases. There's really not a lot of customized personal things there. Um, but that, that was absolutely wonderful. Um, first and foremost, before I forget, uh, my lovely wife, Joy Riley, is here today. Uh, if, if any of you, those nice words, if any of you kind of have this picture of me walking around calm, collected, on top of things, knowing what's going on, Joy bore, bore the brunt of that. When I would walk in the door at 6 o'clock or whenever, it would be, Joy, you don't believe what effing happened today with those, you know. So uh, I, I did a good job uh, faking it all these years with my um, calm, cool, collected uh, demeanor. But... Um, I, I just, uh, and, and my legacy, uh, it is true, it's the beer. There's no question. More, more beer has flowed in the last 10 years in the parks. And, you know, when we started, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to delve too much into that, but when we started that discussion, there was a lot of fear about what the worst would happen. And, you know, I'm very pleased to say that uh, we've had a lot of socializing, a lot of festivities, a lot of fun in our park, and all those horrible things people thought would happen because we allowed alcohol in public spaces uh, did not materialize. So, uh, I, I, you know, it's one of the things I'm proud of with the Parks Department is we're willing to try things even when there may be some doubt and then, uh, and then gauge how they work. Um, I, one of the things I'm really proud of is I feel like I'm leaving this organization in tip-top shape 
with Artie and the board, uh, with Mitty, with Jason, with my senior leadership team, all top-notch people. Uh, and I just truly, you know, feel like I'm, I'm going out on top. And uh, I, I'm for, I feel blessed and fortunate because that doesn't happen for everybody. You don't get to go out on your own terms and your own choice when you feel things are all good. And I'm, I'm getting to do that. So I, I thank you all for that. And I, I owe, <clears throat> owe a lot of people um, thanks for that. I think the thing that motivated me all these years, and you're saying, you know, you're saying all these nice things about me, but I truly have remained motivated for the whole 38 years because of a belief as, as Mitty showed in those, those ribbon cuttings, that we, you know, we in parks can just go out in the system and see how what we do makes a difference. It's very easy. If you go to the Capitol Crescent Trail, if you go take a hike at Little Bennett, if you go to one of the Acoustics and Ales events, if you go to um, a, a Saturday morning where we have a lot of fields and watching the kids play, whatever it is, the ice rinks, um, a therapeutic riding center, I could go on and on, but there's just never been a doubt in my mind that the reason the 800 plus or minus park employees come to work every day is we're making a big, big difference for Montgomery County. And when people brag about Montgomery County being one of the best counties in the country and one of the greatest places to live, you almost always hear parks talked about early on in that discussion. So. Um, I, I, I just hope for all of you that you keep that front and center no matter what you do, no matter what your role is in, in parks, that you're, you're always making a difference. You know, another thing I tell people, particularly when I'm recruiting people, is you really want to work for parks if you're a curious person because we have so many smart subject matter experts working in parks that are really the smartest people in the, in the state in what they do, whether it's environmental engineering and stream restoration or historical and culture interpretation, a whole gamut of things. Uh, uh, th there's experts here that are fat, have a fascinating amount of knowledge about um, you know, what they do, and I've tried to bring some of those topics to the board to expose you to them, and I, I would recommend Mitty continue to do that from time to time with different specialties. Um, you probably, a lot of you saw, I was fortunate enough to be interviewed by John Kelly in the Washington Post a few weeks ago. It was really fun. I was happy the way the article turned out. Uh, his, he wrote his last article this morning uh, himself. I don't know if I inspired him in any way, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's wrapping it up too. But uh, as he was musing about, you know, one do's and a lot of people had written to him about do's and don'ts and retirements and ideas and concepts. And one of those concepts was don't try to do too much too fast. So I'm going to abide by that. Um, Joy and I are remaining in Kensington. We're going to still be uh, in Montgomery County, so I'm not going to entirely disappear. But I plan to hibernate at least in January and February and do a lot of nothing with Joy and maybe some fun things too. Uh, we'll go back and forth uh, this year to the condo we just bought in Bethany Beach, which we're excited about. But then maybe later on in the year, you'll start seeing me pop up here and there, and I'll stop by for uh, social events and parties and things like that. But uh, it, it has been a great ride. I, I just, uh, you know, if I started thanking people, I would be, we would be here all morning. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I just don't think many people get to have a job where they feel that probably 90% of the time they're really happy and excited about what they're doing and the other 10% is the headaches that inevitably come along. But that's, that's kind of how I feel. I feel fortunate and blessed. I've got a ton of people to thank. 
But uh, thank you all for a wonderful, wonderful morning. Thank you. So I want to tell you what our lives were really like. <laughs> um, Artie mentioned that um, Michael had to fix the dam and, and Lake Nadewood. Well, it turns out the day that the dam was perking, I was at a conference in Las Vegas for my job. And Michael was here, obviously, and our poor children were home with a babysitter. So given the time change, I'm in, in Nevada, and I get up and I at 6 a.m., and I turn on CNN. <laughs> and I see my husband standing on top of a dam. And of course, CNN is, and I knew nothing about it, CNN is reporting that the dam's going to break. <laughs> and there's my husband standing right on top. So I picked up my cell phone, and I call him. And uh, I see him on television answer his phone. <laughs> And I said, Michael, get off the dam. <laughs> and he said, Joy, I have to fix the dam. And to which I said, Michael, you do not have to fix the dam standing on top of it when it's about to break. And uh, yeah, so that's what our lives were like. Anyway, he did not get off the dam. The dam did not break. And uh, I came home, and we were, again, a happy family. But I'm thinking. <laughs> You know, I'm halfway across the country, more than halfway across the country. My husband's about to be swept to his death, and our children are home with a babysitter. That's what life with Parks was really like. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th thank you so much. We're, it's a joy to, to have this event this morning. Thank you, Mike. And we're going to take a, a two-minute break, and we'll start with our, our next item, item number five, uh, the designation of the Royce Hansen Conservation Park and Broad Run. Thank you.
Uh, good morning again. We're on item number five, designation of Royce Hansen Conservation Park at Broad Run, where staff is recommending approved the proposed designation of Royce Hansen Conservation Park at Broad Run and Parks. Um, member Diane, Dominique Harlow will give the presentation this morning. Welcome, Dominique. Okay. Can you guys hear me? Wonderful. So good morning. For the record, my name is Dominique Harlow, and I'm the Chief of Staff for the Director's Office for the Montgomery Parks Department. I'm excited to be before the board this morning, not only to talk about this name designation, but also for Director Riley's last planning board item before he retires in about a week. So today I'm here to talk about the legacy of Dr. Royce Hansen and request that the board approve the designation of Royce Hansen Conservation Park at Broad Run. So to begin, I'll talk a little bit about Dr. Royce Hansen. Uh, Dr. Hansen served two terms as the chair of the Montgomery County Planning Board. The first term was from 1972 to 1981, and again from 2006 to 2010. I think it's important to note under his first term, one of the county's greatest successes was the creation of the Ag Reserve, which serves as a model for jurisdictions around the country. Montgomery County's Ag Reserve sets aside 93,000 93, acres of land in Montgomery County, which is equivalent to a third of the county. This land is designated for preservation and farming while also preventing urban sprawl. The Ag Reserve also won the 2017 APA National Planning Excellence Award for Planning Landmark. I'll go more into detail later about the importance of the Ag Reserve, but I thought it was important to mention um, at the beginning of this presentation. In addition to serving on the Montgomery County Planning Board, Dr. Hansen also served as the president of the Maryland Environmental Trust, chair of the Montgomery County Department of Parks Legacy Open Space Advisory Group, and a board member for the Montgomery County Parks Foundation from 2009 to 2022. In addition to the various public service contributions made by Dr. Hansen, he is also an author, an educator, an urban planner, and even has an award named after him by the Montgomery Countryside Alliance. So that is quite a resume, which it's no wonder that soon after that, or soon after Dr. Hansen left the board in 1981, that the new board approved the naming and dedication of Royce Hansen Urban Park in downtown Silver Spring. This park was located just outside of the Silver Spring Montgomery Regional Office Building, also known as MRO. This was home to the Montgomery County Planning Board as well as the Montgomery County Planning Department. I actually worked in that building for quite some time. And you'll see in the picture to the right here, um, there, are, there are picnic tables underneath of those, um, those trees there, and that's where staff would go to have lunch. It was also a place where people would congregate before or after a planning board item. And there was evil, even a little community garden in the center back there, you can see, where staff would grow fruits and vegetables on their lunch break or after work. So as you might imagine, uh, Royce Hansen Urban Park and MRO are no longer in existence. So we're sitting in uh, downtown Wheaton in this new Wheaton headquarters building. Uh, park and planning staff moved to Wheaton headquarters in September 2020 during the pandemic. Prior to that, in 2014, a mandatory referral was submitted for the disposition of Royce Hansen Urban Park and MRO. The staff report included language that said, and I quote, the Parks Department will need to address the relocation of Royce Hansen Park that is currently sited on the property to a more appropriate site. The staff report was then approved by the Planning Board um, in 2014. 
A subsequent letter was sent to the applicant in which the chair at the time, Francois Carrier, noted, and the quote is up there in the right, that the Parks Department will need to address the relocation of Royce Hansen Urban Park to another appropriate site, thus reinforcing the significance of the dedication. I think it's important to note that the Parks Department does have an individual naming and dedication policy. The policy was not in effect in 1981 when the, um, when the naming was approved for Royce Hansen Urban Park. The policy that was eventually established has seen a few updates over the years, with the most recent update occurring in May 2020, which added additional criteria to establish commemorative naming. Dr. Hansen meets most of the criteria of the updated policy. However, it's Park's recommendation that the board continue to honor the decisions made by the previous planning boards in 1981 and again in 2014. So staff did what was asked of them and analyzed approximately three dozen existing park sites to determine a suitable location for this park. The committee was comprised of numerous staff from the parks and planning departments, as well as members from the Parks Foundation. Scoring criteria was based on prominence, accessibility, use, and naming difficulty of the park. The team ultimately decided on Broad Run Conservation Park for the, for the reassignment for a variety of reasons. The first is that it was located or is located in the Ag Reserve. Uh, if you remember from my first slide about Dr. Hansen, he was often referred to as the architect of the Ag Reserve, so the site couldn't be more fitting for it. The park was also designated as Legacy Open Space Best of the Best Natural Resource in 2008. It is 472-acre site that supports opportunities for trail connectivity, education, and natural resources stewardship, as well as resource-based recreational activities, including primitive camping, fishing, picnicking, multi-use trails for hiking, running, horseback riding, etc. cetera. Uh, timing could not be more perfect for this naming. The property was acquired back in 2021 with a two-year reservation term that actually just ended earlier this month, I believe on December 17th. Uh, Dr. Hansen was conferred with after a site selection was made and had some recommendations on partnerships and fundraising opportunities. Uh, this is a great way to honor Dr. Hansen's legacy while growing the next generation of environmentalists. Uh, he did discuss the opportunity of um, fundraising with the Montgomery County Parks Foundation and Director Riley did reach out and they did express interest. Uh, fundraising could cover a variety of park amenities and or educational opportunities. Uh, he also asked that we reach out to partner with Poolsville, Poolsville High School's Global Ecology Program. Uh, this is a great program that offers students the opportunity to get out twice a month to explore, um, or, sorry, explore and investigate historical and cultural issues related to the Earth's natural resources. And the last uh, request that he had was to explore potential for farm incubators on cropland. Uh, we plan to look into these ideas. We have not ironed those out. And for the purposes of this designa designation, they don't need to be approved. Um, but it was just something that we thought was an interesting way to continue to honor his legacy. So in summary, we are requesting that the board approve resolution 23-136 for the designation of Royce Hansen Urban Park at Broad Run. Any questions? Thank you very much. Are there any questions from the board members? I yes. I just have a comment. Sure. Um, 
I remember that I was working on site selection when I was at the parks department, and we had a lot of sites. And I remember the last one I remember, I think it was the uh, entrance at Little Bennett Park. That's what we left it at. But I think that project never come to be realized, correct? That's correct. The first committee did settle on the day use area at Little Bennett Park. Yeah. It's an area that was uh, along 355 that was envisioned to be uh, a place with uh, active amenities where families could go spend the better yeah. part of a day, something like Wheaton Regional Park. Uh, it had a very, very high price tag, I believe $10 million or more. It was at one time funded in the CIP, and then during some challenging years for uh, the county with general obligation bonds, we were asked to cut tens of millions of dollars out of our CIP, and that project was basically indefinitely deferred. Yeah, so I hope whether, that whether it, it comes, comes back, back to the board yeah. someday. Uh, it was a beautiful project, yeah. but I did work under uh, Roy Sanson, and I have the word of respect for him. And um, this is actually seems like that maybe it's even a better option because it's right in Ag Reserve and everything. So when I look at the, you know, when I started looking at the, uh, you know, packet this week and I saw Rose Hansen, oh my God, this is not done yet. <laughs> I thought it was a done deal. So well deserved. I totally support it. And it looks like that a perfect match. Thank you. Yeah, it was something that Director Riley had requested that we bring to the board before he left. Um, so we're glad that we were able to bring it to you um, before he retires. And I do want to note here on this last slide, it does say the designation of Royce Hansen Urban Park at Broad Run, and that should say Conservation Park. Great. Yeah, any other comments, questions? Well, I, I, uh, thank you for your presentation. It was uh, wonder wonderfully given. And um, yes, it's. Uh, I'm so happy that you were able to do this, especially uh, before Mike leaves. Um, uh, Royce also meant a lot to me. I mean, at my first month here, he was he came and talked to me about how how to be a great chair and his 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 his, his thoughts on that. And he gave me his new book uh, that he wrote about regionalism, which was very very important. So, um, yeah, thank you. And if there are no other questions or comments, uh, do I have a motion? to uh, approve the uh, proposed designation of the Royce Hansen Conservation Park at Broad Run and adopt the resolution. Yeah, I move uh, to approve the designation of Royce Hansen Conservation Park at Broad Run. I'll second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Congratulations. Congratulations, Royce. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So we'll take a, a two-minute break and we'll start with item number six, Zoning Text Amendment 23-08, Transferable Development Rights Cemetery Public Hearing. Thank you.
Uh, good morning. We're on item number six, zoning text amendment ZTA 23-08, transferable development rights dash cemetery, where staff is recommending transmit comments to the district council. So this morning we have Ben Berbert to give the presentation for the planning staff. Good morning, Ben. Thank you, Chair. Good morning. Ben Berbert for the record with the Countywide Planning and Policy Division. Um, as you said, this is a presentation on ZTA 2308, Transfer Development Rights Cemeteries. Uh, this is the high-level overview. Staff is recommending that the Planning Board transmit a memo to the District Council in support of ZTA 2308 as it's been introduced. Uh, it was introduced back on November 7th by Councilmember Balcom. Uh, there is a public hearing that is scheduled for this ZTA on January 16th, 2024. Uh, and what this ZTA would do is it would modify the list of uses that are currently prohibited in the zoning ordinance from being developed on land that's encumbered by transfer development right easement um, by allowing cemeteries to expand, although not necessarily create new uh, on such land. Um, what this sort of looks like in code ease, as I like to call it, um, you can see here under 59315, transferable development rights, Subsection four, where the commercial lists are, and then C, cemeteries, adding the word, unless expanding existing cemetery. Um, I briefly just want to make sure we all sort of understand the idea of this transfer development right easement. Transfer development rights was a program established back in the early 1980s as part of the agricultural reserve and the master plan out there that created a compensation mechanism for landowners to sell these development rights that they used to have before they were downzoned from one unit per five acres to one unit per 25 acres, they could sell that to areas in the down part of the county and they could then use the extra density to build developments in the lower part of the county. Once, that ease, once the transfer of development right was what they call serialized or created um, and then sold, an easement was put on the land to mark that that has happened. Um, the sort of premise behind all of this is these landowners have been compensated for that transfer of development right, so they shouldn't then be additionally compensated by allowing these sort of more intense uses to also occur on their property, um, which is why there's prohibited uses if there is an easement. Um, so again, this is making a subtle change to that policy for the expansion of this one use. Um, as you can see in the staff report, and I'll briefly mention here, while we are ultimately recommending support of this ZTA, um, it wasn't without a little bit of thought internally. Um, you know, one of the first things we thought of was, you know, do cemeteries really need to be on this list of prohibited uses? And I think the most poignant thing that was brought up in that is, if there's ever a land use you cannot revert, no matter how much money you throw at the situation, how much you mend the soil, it's a burial ground. Once that is a burial ground, it is a burial ground. Um, and so we did decide for the sake of preserving agriculture that fully removing cemeteries from the list was not a good recommendation. Um, another thing we looked at so that there was sort of parity in all of the uses on that list, should any of them be allowed to expand onto an adjacent property with a uh, easement? Um, there might be merit there, but I think the scope of that was sort of too big and unknown for us to study at this time, and so we decided not to make that recommendation. Um, we also thought about should there be standards placed on this expansion, a, a size limit to how much it can expand? Um, are there different soil types that this should be allowed on? Should there be uh, forestry provisions, other stuff like that? Um, we actually looked at our burial sites and found there's only about 20 of them that this would apply to. 
Um, and we felt that that was a small enough envelope that even if all 20, which is doubtful, took advantage of this, it would not have a consequential change to the agricultural reserve and therefore decided that trying to come up with standards that made sense for also more effort than it was worth here. And that's how we got to recommending introduction, um, recommending approval as introduced. Um, staff did do a climate assessment on this ZTA. Uh, again, very slight changes, potentially negative on greenhouse gas emissions and sequestrations, um, largely due to things that are hard to measure, such as will this increase vehicle miles traveled by having more cemeteries in the ag reserve? Is this gonna induce people to travel out there to them? Um, any potential changes in land cover? You know, is it, a is it more of a natural land cover that then becomes a little more formalized through a cemetery? Um, and then conversely, there could be some very slight positive or negative changes to the adaptive capacity and resilience factors. Um, again, negative mainly because changes in land cover could have very localized increases of sort of climate hazards, particularly flooding risk. Um, positive changes could be that there's better community connectiveness, connectiveness and cohesiveness um, by allowing these sort of historic cemeteries to expand in place. So um, very minor, kind of solid as a, a wash on climate impacts. Um, so in conclusion, staff is recommending the board transmit the memo to council supporting ZTA 2308 as introduced for the reasons that I've explained. And that concludes my presentation. All right, thank you, Mr. Berbert. Do the board members have any comments or questions? One of the things I might find useful in the zoning text amendment presentation is an example of how it's used currently like a literal example with an explanation like a story facts and then what could potentially happen in the best possible case scenario um, and so when we're changing it we understand why we're changing it and you give rationale for the change but giving an example of the change and how it could possibly be used would be very um, informative for me as well as the public. Thanks. Any other comments or questions? So, yeah, thank you for your presentation. I, I, I appreciate the research your staff did into, you know, the pros and cons of each option. Um, and, um, yes, I think, it's, it, well, it's important, I believe, given the minimal risks for this existing cemetery to expand. Uh, but I, one question I did have out of curiosity, um, where can cemeteries go in the county by right? Just out of curiosity, you know, and, and is, is that, and are there enough places? So can, I don't know if you can address that or you can uh, get back to me, but I just out of curiosity. Yeah, we could quickly, um, if one of my colleagues could quickly pull up the use table, because I don't recall off the top of my head. I do know, I believe they're allowed at least through limited or conditional use standards in many zones. Um, they are allowed in the AR zone under conditional use. You could do new cemeteries, and we've seen applications come in for new cemeteries in the AR zone just on land that doesn't have a TDR encumbered easement on it. Um, give us one second. That's not going to change how we vote, but, but if you can get back to just out, out of curiosity, okay? Um, so if there are no other comments or questions, uh, I, is there a motion to um, recommend transmitting 
the, the ZTA to the district council. Yeah, yeah I move that we uh, transmit comments on ZTA 23-08, Transferal Development Rights Cemetery to the council. Second. Um, all in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Uh, thank you so much. And we'll, um, do we need to take a two minute break uh, because Mr. Berber is. Oh, here she is. Here. We can, we can, okay. We'll just take a one minute break uh, and we'll go and we'll start again. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, we're we're now on item number seven, zoning and text amendment number ZTA twenty three zero nine farming incidental outdoor stays, where staff is recommending transmittal of comments to the district council. Uh, good morning, and Mr. Burbert will present this, and we present this item. Thank you. All right. Thank you for the record, Ben Burbert with Countywide Planning and Policy. I'm proceed pleased to present you with an even simpler ZTA, uh, ZTA 2309, uh, Farming Incidental Outdoor Stays. Um, so staff does have a lot of recommendations with this ZTA. There are sort of a lot of moving parts. Um, as a summary, staff is recommending the board transmit a memo to the council that's in support of the concept of the incidental outdoor stays. Um, but we do have a few recommended amendments. Uh, they include retaining the 10% limit on agritourism, actually defining the use incidental outdoor stay, prohibiting all plumbing within individual structures that are used for the dwellings, um, coming up with a limit that either limits the structure occupancy or the structure size of each unit that allows a stay, uh, clarify what is meant by the four day per week limitation, um, setting minimum farm area and maximum site areas, establishing 100-foot setbacks for the use, uh, prohibiting development on land currently used by food production or on category one or two soils, um, and that the incidental outdoor stays should be shifted as an accessory agricultural use uh, rather than embedded within the definition of farming. And we will walk through all of this in, in a little bit more. So um, as a background, this ZTA was introduced November 7th, 2023 by Councilmember Fanny Gonzalez and co-sponsored by President uh, now, President Friedson and Council Members Glass and Sales. A public hearing is scheduled at the Council on January 16th, 2024. Um, and broadly, this ZTA amends the definition of farming 
um, by removing the 10% structure limitations for agritourism uses, uh, including the, a new use type of incidental outdoor stay and establishing use standards and implementation standards for incidental outdoor stays. Um, one of the things that we do want to just sort of briefly put out there is that staff have been made aware that there is possible amendments that would be coming from one or more of the sponsors or co-sponsors on this ZTA. Um, there are no firm commitments as to what these amendments may include, um, but we have heard they might include things such as requiring the structures for incidental outdoor stays to be temporary structures, um, that there may be limits coming to the size of each overnight stay structure itself, and that there may be consideration around minimum lot or property size that the use can occur on. Um, staff already has recommendations sort of formulated for uh, two of those, and we will get into that as we continue through the presentation. Um, again, to go through the ZTA as it was actually introduced, uh, the first thing here is uh, a change to subsection F under the definition of farming. Uh, this is sort of the definition that establishes the idea of agritourism and what agritourism is. Uh, so it does one thing, it adds incidental outdoor stays as part of agritourism. Um, and then you can see in the sort of red bracketed area, this is where it was removing the 10% limit on how much of agricultural structures can be used towards agritourism uses. The next thing that the ZTA does is right below that in code, it creates G, which is the sort of new use standard section that would apply for incidental outdoor stays, uh, including the provisions um, that sort of agritourism needs to be part of the farm's existing operation for it to have incidental outdoor stays, um, that the outdoor stays must be in separate structures from the primary residence, that no cooking facilities will be permitted in the same structures as a sleeping quarter, uh, that the maximum number of structures for stays is 10, the maximum number of occupants per structure 18 or older is two, and that Incidental outdoor stays are permitted a maximum of four days per week. Um, there are a couple of other, pardon the pun, incidental changes that occur in the zoning ordinance. Um, there are some sections that talk about accessory structures and set sort of limitations on the size and scope of these structures. Um, one of them under 59.374 for accessory miscellaneous uses. Uh, this is adding the provision ensuring that incidental outdoor stay buildings do not have to follow the size restrictions above that they cannot exceed 50% of, of the footprint of the principal building. And then exact same provision is also added under the agricultural reserve zones standard method development table, um, also exempting a structure being used as an incidental outdoor stay from the 50% footprint provision. Um, so now Seth's gonna go through some of the recommendations that we highlighted at the beginning. Uh, the first recommendation is not to remove that 10% limit on how much of the farm structures can be used towards agritourism uses. Um, we're not really sure where or why that actually got into the ZTA. Um, and I think, you know, from our internal discussion, we think there could be some unintended consequences no longer defining where the upper limit for an agritourism use is and what actually keeps agritourism as sort of an accessory use to a farm. Um, you know, we will add that if one of the concerns was that the incidental outdoor stays may quickly add up to more than 10% of what's there. The same exemption that was applied to the two other sections of code maybe could be considered to be added here. Um, not really being sure why this was for removal, our recommendation is just to sort of pass along the higher comment that we don't support it, um, but obviously we can work with council staff if there is sort of a reason that they had in mind. Um, 
our next recommendation is to actually provide a clear definition for incidental outdoor stays in the code. Um, I think part of why this wasn't there in the first place is that technically all of this is being put in as a subset of the definition of farming. Um, but some of the confusion that has, I think, come from this, I call it a use for lack of better word, um, is because the use really isn't defined and there's really not a clear direction or vision for what it is. And that may have been done on purpose to allow a lot of freedom, but I think it's also causing a lot of sort of confusion um, and sort of mixed feelings about it. And I think staff think it's pretty important that we actually do have a, a set definition of what incidental outdoor stays are. And that may help clarify some of the other comments or concerns with other provisions of this ZTA. Um, you know, I think staff has a preference that, you know, leans a little bit on sort of the, the literal definition of incidental that this really take on a, a very subset use to the farming. It would probably have a form or feel a little bit more like camping with more rustic structures and that kind of blend in or really augment agritourism uses. Um, but again, staff also feels like really it's up to council staff to probably properly define this term. So that was our suggestion. Um, the next recommendation, uh, there is a current recommendation to prohibit cooking facilities within the structures, which staff does support. Um, staff really thinks this probably should go further to keep the use incidental, um, again, using the literal term of incidental, and that plumbing facilities generally should not be in the same structure as the stays. Um, you know, staff is still very open to the idea that, you know, plumbing through some sort of shared bathhouse is, is very reasonable to have with this. Um, we're just advocating that you know, our vision of what this use is would not have the plumbing or really, we're talking about restroom facilities at this point um, within the individual structures. Um, and again, I think part of this speaks to the definition concern. We're trying to figure out what sets us apart from just lodging as defined by code now. Um, and so we're, we're trying to figure out what kind of things might actually differentiate that from just expanding lodging use in the AR zone instead. Um, Another recommendation is finding ways to further limit the number of guests allowed in each structure. Um, again, I think the, we recognize the two, per, the two adult cap seems reasonable. Um, there were some concerns by not setting a total cap that you could have somebody that would create a series of bunkhouses that would allow 20 or 30 campers with two chaperones to stay in these things. And that is a very different feeling use with sort of different external factors than, you know, a, a cabin with one or two bedrooms intended for a, an immediate family. Um, but we also are aware it starts getting a little weird when you start trying to define families and how big they are and really actually limiting occupancy. And so our recommendation is to take the maximum square footage approach. Um, and we put out 400 square feet when we just sort of did simple math of if you had two small 10 by 10 bedrooms and one 10 by 20 sort of common living space, that's 400 square feet. That seems sort of fitting with what we envision this used to be. Um, thinking about additional use standards that were not covered, um, we did mention uh, one is a minimum farm size. Uh, we settled on 25 acres as a minimum farm size to start with. This really is just based on the idea that you need a site area of 25 acres for one buildable lot for a residential use in the ag zone. Um, and so having a farm that at least meets the 25 acre minimum just seemed like a reasonable place to start as a, a recommendation for that. Um, 
We did also want to look at maximum site area. I think, you know, agriculture is the primary focus of the agricultural reserve, and we want to make sure agriculture remains the primary focus and use in the agricultural reserve. Um, so we're proposing a 10% or five acre, whichever is smaller. Um, so the idea is that farms less than 50 acres in size um, would just be allowed to do 10% of their property as sort of associated with this use. And then any farm larger than the 50 acres would just be capped at five acres. Um, you know, we had talked about whether this should just be a flat percentage, but at some point, if you're limited to 10 structures, it doesn't seem to benefit anything to give an exponentially growing site area to these uses. Um, and this is, again, our attempt to make sure that agriculture still is the predominant use here. Um, another one staff is recommending adding to the standards is a minimum 100-foot setback of these incidental outdoor state structures from a surrounding property. Um, this was pulled because that is the setback that's recommended for the campground use, that campsites be kept from adjacent properties. Um, there are a few other instances in the code where sort of uses that sort of seem a little unusual for the zone but are allowed either by conditional or limited use have sort of established 100-foot setbacks as sort of a, a, a grand enough buffer that it sort of mitigates almost any externality that you would have at that point. Um, and the final recommendation that we're adding, and this one actually came out of our climate assessment, was that we think that this should be prohibited on land that have most recently been actively used for food production or on the category one or category two soils that, as defined by Department of Agriculture. Um, again, this partly came out of uh, the concern that, you know, we are trying to increase local food production in our ag reserve. We're trying to use it for agricultural purposes. We don't want to start putting competing interests in there that would potentially take away from that. Um, and so that was seen as a negative in the climate assessment, and one of the ways we think to maybe change that negative to a neutral or even a positive would be to add this prohibition on soil land that was used for fruit production or in the Category 1 and Category 2 soils. Um, so if you add Category 1 and Category 2 soils, how much of the area would it be limited? Is it a big area of the ag history, uh, you know, area that has category one or two, I don't know what you mean by that. Sure. If this was a huge discussion point that came up as part of the ag solar discussion a couple of years ago, and it really depends on the farm. Some properties are almost all cat one and cat two soils, and some have none. It, it kind of looks like a kaleidoscope across the county if you were to map where those soils are. Um, and so it, it, it would have very uneven effective restriction on property owners. Um, Could you explain what is category one and two? I forgot. Sure. So soil categories, um, I think there's at least five. I don't remember exactly how many there are. But they're ranked in sort of how good they are for productivity of, yeah. of food agriculture. And so category one is considered your best soil. Category two is less good than one. And it continues down the category chain all the way to at least, I believe, five. Um, and so this would exclude the development on sort of the two best of the five category classes of soil um, as a way of sort of protecting our best soils from some sort of development that would potentially degrade the land in a way that kind of takes it out of being as highly classified in the future. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Um, another recommendation we have is 
uh, and this is a little bit of an interesting one, it's to actually move incidental outdoor stays out of the definition of farming and shift it a little bit back in the agricultural section of the code as an accessory agricultural use. Um, there's a few reasons for this. I think the, the first one is, again, we're having a hard time not considering this a new use, and so that in itself makes it weird to kind of bury it into the definition of another use as part of its definition. Um, and it's particularly because there are a whole set of use standards that apply to this. So I couldn't find anywhere else in our current zoning code where we have use standards so blatantly put into the definition of a use. The, the code usually defines a use and then it has a separate use standards section. Um, the other sort of problem that we run into is generally use standards apply when uses are deemed as either limited or conditional in the code. You don't have use standards for permitted uses because they're permitted. Um, and so keeping incidental outdoor stays nested into the definition of farming, uh, the first place it takes us is making farming a limited use in the ag zone, which seems like a really not good idea because the whole point of agriculture is, is farming. Um, it's one way that would solve this problem, but I don't think it's a good way to solve the problem. The simpler method that, again, staff is, is recommending here is if we just shift all this as an accessory agricultural use, um, you could still leave incidental outdoor stays as a mention point in farming, maybe where they added it to the sort of definition of ag tourism, but then have the actual use defined and use standards set for it as a limited use in the, an accessory agricultural use section of the code. Um, it just, in our opinion, it really cleans up this, the way this whole thing flows. We can keep farming as a permitted use that way. We can clearly point people who want to do this as to where to go. Um, and so that is, is a sort of a big change in, in code that we are recommending. Um, we did look into it. We do think this ZTA can make that recommendation as sort of part of every ZTA. There are sections of code that are noticed as being recommended for change and you can't make changes outside of what's been recommended for change because that's not what the public was noticed on. But this generally noticed that the entire agricultural section is potentially up for change. Um, so we do think if, you know, the, the planning board and if the council wanted to pursue this, they could through this ZTA, they would not have to reintroduce the ZTA to do that. Um, quickly covering the climate assessment. Again, um, a mixture of positive and negative impacts, again, mostly were on the slight side. Um, again, this could have a negative impact on greenhouse gas emissions. The uses in the agricultural reserve, it would likely cause an increase in vehicle miles traveled and probably personal vehicles because there's not a lot of great transit out there. Um, this also could create additional carbon through embodied emissions from the development of new structures. Um, this also would have a slight negative impact uh, and positive impacts on the community resilience and adaptive capacity factors. Um, again, potentially increasing exposure to climate hazards such as flooding because of the potential land use change, but that is relatively localized and minor. Um, but the positives could be increased economic activity. And really what I think the whole point of this is, is ways of actually getting people to learn more about our ag reserve and actually experience the ag reserve and go through ag tourism. You know, that, that is a, a good positive that is actually part of this analysis. Um, so in conclusion, I won't read through them again. Staff has our recommendations. This is the same list that 
should be in the staff report as to what we would like to see the planning board recommend on this ZTA. Um, so I'm going to conclude my presentation. I, I do suspect there'll be a lot of comments and questions, and we are happy to work through them. Uh, great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, before the board weighs in, I, we have um, someone here, to, uh, Attorney <coughs> Pat Harris, to make a presentation or give a comment, and then we'll have the board uh, give comments after that. Thank you. Yep, Ms. Harris. Good morning. Pat Harris with Lurch, Charlie and Brewer. We represent a farmer with a 300-acre farm north of Poolsville who's been following this and is very interested in the zoning text amendment, um, and we're very supportive of it. Agritourism is a growing segment of the economy, as everyone knows, and allowing overnight stays provides an educational um, component to it and really ultimately promotes an appreciation of the Ag Reserve, which ultimately, I believe, um, helps promote its sustainability. Um, we spoke to Kelly Groff, who is the president of Visit Montgomery, and she was very excited about this zoning text amendment. All you need to do is Google farm stays, and you'll see that there are many opportunities out there to stay at a farm so you can appreciate it, you know, teach your kids about the animals, about how the crops are grown, et cetera. But you can't do that in Montgomery County. So Montgomery County is not capitalizing on one of its most important assets, which is the Ag Reserve. Um, so we have, we are very supportive of the zoning text amendment, have reviewed it. I have, um, there's a number of comments or recommendations that we don't necessarily agree on, but we think they're workable, so I'm not going to focus on those. I'll just identify them really briefly. One is the setbacks. There are already setback requirements in the AR zone, so I don't think that's necessary. In terms of the max area, the 10% makes sense, so therefore I don't think there needs to be a five-acre cap. Um, and then in the limitation on soil types, that sounds highly restrictive, especially if you think about it. If you have a 300-acre farm and you already have a five-acre cap, um, it, that's very little impact. Um, and if you happen to have only soils one and two, then you're totally precluded. Um, but what I really wanted to focus on is the restriction on plumbing. And I never thought I would be in front of the planning board talking about bathrooms, but here I am. Um, it's, that decision seems like a qualitative decision, um, which is somewhat subjective and really has to do with how someone's going to experience this and doesn't go to any zoning basis. And in fact, when I think about it, I would say the preclusion on plumbing in individual units creates more of an impact because now you're requiring yet another unit for a bathhouse or maybe two units. Or if you have your outdoor stays not consolidated, maybe four additional units. Um, so I don't think it has a basis in zoning. And um, I actually think that you're also precluding a portion of the population from enjoying, enjoying the experience because a lot of people don't want to go someplace if there's not a restroom. I would note that Little Bennett Campground has individual cabins and they have bathrooms. And in fact, the county employee said, and I'm going to quote, this is on the website, we wanted to make it easier for people to reconnect with nature. Cabins offer an option that those that want to get outdoors might want a few comforts of home. And those cabins have bathrooms. So we would encourage you to not support the prohibition on the plumbing. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Attorney Harris. Uh, now we have, uh, you can stay there while we finish. Okay. Any comments or questions from the board? I, I have some uh, comments. Um, 
Mr. Berbert, that was an outstanding presentation. And uh, it's funny that you said this zoning text amendment was less complex than the one previous, <laughs> because I don't think it is. But I like your recommendations, and um, uh, I like how you all are reading between the lines, forecasting the, the potential for what could happen, the benefits, and then also the risk for abuse. Um, when I read this, I was envisioning um, Jellystone Park in Western Maryland or Hagerstown, which are cabins, and then there's a uh, another um, park that I happen to stay at in the Eastern Shore, and it was a cabin with a restroom, and it it was very rudimentary. It was like bunk beds, a cabin, um, and, and with bunks built into the side of the wall. Um, but one of my concerns is that there's a potential for abuse, and I think you guys are, are seeing that also, and wanting to limit like food producing structures. Um, and then it could also have a negative environmental impact if you have food producing structures there. Um, the bathroom thing is a concern to me because I don't know how someone could get the full benefit of it and then um, stay overnight and then not have a bathroom. Um, is this going to be like a Good Sam RV park or Jellystone or like the, um, the park that Miss um, Harris mentioned? Uh, and then one of the questions I have is like, what is a structure, right? Is it permanent? Is it temporary? Um, what kind of surfaces will a structure have? Um, will it be seasonal? Will it be year round? Um, so I, I really like the work that your team put into this, and, and I generally like the recommendations, but those are the questions and concerns that I have. But what is also important, I don't know if your client is Ms. Kip, Mr. Kiplinger, uh, Ms. Harris, but um, I know he's a great landowner in the Poolsville area, but the use of their farms to you know, continue to produce revenue in off seasons and maximizing the farms during the end season is very interesting. I have a friend who owns a farm called Sharps Farm in Howard County, and there's always a battle as to whether or not a farmhand can have a structure on the premises and live on the premises while tending to the farm and who can occupy those premises once those premises are, are permanent. And so what, what I could envision happening is that this, be, uh, this will eventually be abused, and if it's abused, who will enforce or restrict um, its abuse? Um, but all in all, I think this is an opportunity where farmers have a chance to recognize revenue that is not generally there and has been restricted by the designation of the agricultural zone. It's a very sensitive topic, and um, but I really appreciate your work because it answered a lot of questions that I had when when I read through it. And so it's it's going to be tough to strike a balance in this, and I, I really appreciate your work on it. Thanks. Sure, I appreciate that. I'll just I'll quickly hit on a couple of, of um, concerns I heard. I think when it comes to what is this going to look or feel like, that's probably the greatest unknown, and. I, you know, there is some benefit to letting each individual farm owner decide what experience they want. I think some of them might want to lean into it being a very rustic experience as sort of their de facto. I think there are others 
that are going to want to lean into this to being much more of a, a luxury opportunity. Um, and I don't inherently want to think, think we should be trying to regulate like what level of, of finesse is put into the inside or the actual user experience in that way. Um, the other sort of thing, the actual type of structure, that's another interesting choice. I mean, structure is a defined term in the code with walls and a roof. Walls and a roof. Um, the idea of, of, you know, calling the structure temporary, I think, is a little, we haven't thought through that all the way. We don't actually have a real definition of temporary in the code. Um, there might be an opportunity to use this to, to think about what that actually wants to be. Um, and whether that has to do with how it's structurally built through a foundation or a surface it sits on, whether it has to do with the amount or types of amenities or utility hookups it is or isn't allowed to have. I think all that could be built into what's considered temporary. Um, the other thing, though, is, is, you know, in relying on temporary, I think with this kind of use, the structure might be something we think of as temporary, but it's not really going to be temporary. I think the idea would be you'd have it for multiple years and seasons and keep using it. So um, I think a little thought needs to be given further on to, to what exactly that temporary nature is. Um, but it, I think as it's defined, it could be somebody that goes all the way and pours footings and, and foundation for the structure. And I think it could be people that actually pull in sort of I'll call them a, a nice camping like trailer situation and, and putting it down. Um, and I, th I think the way it's written, all of that is a possible option. Um, I know the, the idea of the, the bathrooms in the facility is probably one of the touchier subjects with this. Um, you know, I, I think it really gets down to a level of what, what we're expecting and what incidental is. And so, you know, as was pointed out, our own park system has you know, what they consider rustic cabins, and they do have restrooms inside. They're more rustic just because there's not as many creature comforts sort of filling the rest of the cabin, but it does have the restrooms. Um, I've been at, at lots of parks, state parks and other county parks in other counties that have cabins that don't have restrooms. Yeah, I think Tuckahoe State Park is where I stayed, and they had cabins with like a heating or AC unit and bunk beds built into the wall, but then they had a central bathroom yes. that everyone had to go to. And I think that's, that's, that's the vision that staff sort of had when reading Incidental Outdoor Stays is the more the route it would take. Um, and so I think that's our, our recommendation, again, lacking a better definition for the use as a whole. Um, you know, but I think we're aware this is a, a big discussion item and, yep. you know, I think we're, we're very cognizant that it could limit a lot of people who would want to stay if they don't have access to that amenity. Um, and so I don't want to say that we're inflexible on this either, but it's, it's our best and first recommendation as to sort of where the scope of this would be. Yeah, thank you. I'd like some other opportunity yeah. for others to I, weigh in. I really believe, I know how important the bathroom is. I work with the Parks <laughs> Department. And it takes, you know, we want to encourage people to go there. Not having the bathroom, it's gonna, I know it's gonna discourage me. I'm not gonna go a place that, especially a lot of people that have to get up in the middle of the night and use the bathroom when it is dark and you're asking them that to go out there. I understand having cooking not to be done there, and that's not a big deal. Uh, but um, I really would believe that 
if we want to have this to do the intended purpose, it should have a bathroom. And also it saves, if someone may just want to have three or four of these, for three or four of these, you don't want to create a central bathroom. It's going to be more costly uh, to do. So that's one I support to put the bathroom back. And in regard to category one and two of soils, I understand what you are thinking, uh, but I think, again, that's farming. We want to encourage people to come where there is farming, and we want them to see how the farming is there and participate. Uh, you want to have kids to come there and participate. Uh, maybe they have an open farming there that kids can come and do. Uh, unless that uh, we see how much restriction, because I don't have a visual map to see that how much of area in a park, uh, in a farm, is going to take away. Uh, but it may take away a best location uh, that is next to um, uh, a farm that people can come have tell and show, show and tell uh, to do that. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to, to weigh in on a couple of the, the recommendations. I honestly, like, I... Um, I appreciate the, the the effort with staff going from sort of like trying to define incidental and trying to put put limits and strictures on that. But honestly, I think that we should, if we're going to go this route and 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 sort of try to expand the agritourism, that we do it as broadly as possible. I honestly would argue to strike, like, if we don't want to retain the ten percent, let's not retain the ten percent agritourism. I mean, if that's the best use of the property, go for it. Uh, in my opinion, same with the. Um, minimum size, minimum site areas. I would try to make this as expansive and flexible as possible. With that, including up to and including the plumbing, um, not restricting development on the soils or, you know. I understand the food production one, but quite honestly, I, I, there's a million point one people in the county. We're not feeding them based on the agri-surf. Um, it's important. It's, it's good. There's an economic benefit to it. But to the extent that there's an environmental impact, I don't think that's that's really coming coming at it. I would try to limit the four days per week. I think is already in there. You're just asking to clarify that piece within this the structure. I don't think the minimum farm area and maximum site area size is necessary. I don't think the 10% restriction is is necessary. Um, I would go for allowing plumbing and cooking facilities. Honestly, if people want to make this as um, the the idea to make this as economically viable and flexible as possible to actually produce this, and, and that includes the setback requirements, which I think we already have in the hour reserve. So I would, I would argue that we, in this, we focus mainly on, you know, the definition and then ex allowing as much expansive ability to do this and produce this as possible so that it is a viable economic option to do this so that we don't end up with not being, having farms that are restricted because of the soil types that, that are there um, and sort of leave that within the, the realm of of economics, I, I, I would I would limit our comments on sort of increasing the restricted ability within this this ETA. Okay, so th thank you for your comments. Mm -hmm. Do you are you have any comments? Do we do we have a general sense of um, like approximately? And if if you need to get back to us, that's fine. But like approximately, how many farms would be mostly or all encumbered by the type one, type two? Soil restriction. How many properties would that sort of exclude, as a you know, as a share of everything in the ag reserve? Yeah. I know we have, and I think Patrick has handy um, some of the analysis that was done as part of the ag solar and 
Um, it is fairly restrictive, although I think the number you have is based on also where there's 15 contiguous acres, I thought, for the... It, yeah. When it was done for ag solar and all of its limitations, some of which are not here, but a lot of them are, um, it did bring it down to about 1,600 acres, but I believe that also was looking at for contiguous, I think 15 acre mm -hmm. blocks so that you could actually site solar. So I don't think it's quite as clean to say that there's only 1,600 acres that aren't in Cat 1 or Cat uh, 2. Yeah. There were 1,600 acres that weren't in Cat 1, Cat 2 that could also accommodate solar. So, yeah. so big enough tracks that weren't to 1 or 2. Tracks, so they're, yeah, uh, yeah I think, I think so if you really look at it, it looks like a child's paint-by-number kaleidoscope <laughs> on the solar sure, map. Yeah. And so it is a little... So in this case, we could probably assume, you know, needing much smaller kind of pad sites almost or spaces to fit these in that reasonable to assume kind of more would be available given for these particular uses than for kind of a solar array. Yes, but it, I'm not going to pretend it's not still restrictive, but yeah. I think it's not yeah. as restrictive as the solar one turned out to yeah. be. I think there's going to jump in, Josh, for a second. Yeah, yeah. On the, along those lines, I think there's, there's I, I understand the wanting to limit the most productive soils and things like that. I think I, I, I lean toward more the, the land for food production. I don't want to see anybody bulldozing, you know, apple trees or something to put up this kind of, this kind of situation. But if there's a currently unused portion or a currently unleased or non-productive, I think that's a reasonable thing to, to allow within that structure. Okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you you can go ahead, and I want to make, and then we can finish sure. up here. Okay, okay. Sure. I just, I just wanted to clarify too. So, one on the the uh, the recommendation to prohibit uh, plumbing to these structures, these things that are going to allow these uh, overnight stays. Um, we weren't suggesting there wouldn't be bathrooms at all. It would be more of a community fil uh, facility, uh, similar to what we have in in some of our parks facilities. Um, again, trying to. Uh, uh, maintain, preserve the, the water, which is a precious resource, mm -hmm. um, to support the primary use in the ag reserve, which would be agriculture. And again, I, I respect uh, what you're saying, trying to make this as um, economically viable as possible accessory use mm -hmm. to agriculture. But again, that's, that's where um, the primary focus of our recommendations is ensuring that agriculture remains the primary use and mm -hmm. that the resources in the ag reserve support the primary use and that perhaps um, uh, some, some of the, the, the level that this could expand to mm -hmm. um, would be more appropriate in other areas of the county, not in the ag reserve. So that, that's the basis of where these recommendations from staff yeah. are coming from. Um, I hope that no, clarifies some things for you. I think that's a great comment. Um, if there was an established um, requisite that there be some farming activity or food growing um, that must continue to happen in order for them to have these dwellings or these temporary units. I think that's essential because what I could see is farmers are very savvy businessmen, right? So if you give them an opportunity to say um, build a good sand park or a jellystone park that's like cabin oriented and they figure out a way to maximize the use of those and then they stop growing food because you can build these structures and forget about it and the maintenance costs, the turnover, the labor is less. So you could have a situation where 
they find a way to build these and, they, and they're permanent, they have plumbing, um, could possibly use bees for temporary long-term housing, right, four days a week, they can get around it. But if you don't have it directly connected to their farming activity, I think you could, could run the risk of them uh, finding a way to utilize the land solely for the purpose of agritourism and not for agricultural food production or some kind of um, raw material production. Yeah. So Can let me, I let me clarify one thing. Okay. The zoning text amendment as written limits it to 10 units. So you're never yeah. going to have a situation where someone's going to decide, okay, my sole resource is going to be providing these units at, at the jeopardy of farming. I mean, they're farmers, and the priority is going to be making sure they have enough order to farm. This mm -hmm. is just incidental to right. the primary use. There's Great. a 10 structure limit Thank already. You. Yeah. So let me, um, let me summarize some things and give you my thoughts. So uh, I appreciate the staff. Uh, you know, thinking through this very intentionally, and I, I like your analysis, well thought our analysis. I do feel that there should be some flexibility, more flexibility um, in in the ZTA, and I, I feel that um, plumbing, and to give the flexibility of plumbing, um, it's only, you know, if people want to put it in, it's they do, if they don't, it's only 10 units, maximum 10 units, right? And the other piece, um, I think we're struggling with this because we have no vision for what it could be. So that's why, you know, it's like, is it, what does it look like? You know, we have no sense of what this is for, right? And so that's why it's hard. Four days a week, well, why four, you know? Um, so so what, I, what I would, and then the soil piece, I would, what, isn't it? 90,000, how many thousands acres of in the Ag Reserve? How many acres? Yeah, it's, an, it's a 93,000 acre Ag 93,000 acre Ag Reserve. And if it is limited to only five acres, you know, just say mac, whatever, 10% of whatever maximum five acres, I don't personally think that um, it, it would be a big issue on the Ag Reserve to have five acres that are in type one or type two soils. And even if it's like, say a farm had a type three soil, this is my thought, if it's on the side somewhere, you may end up putting more roads and, you know, to get to that, you know, type three area. So I'm, if it's, I am okay with the retain the 10% limit on agritourism and, and the, so therefore that, but maximum five acres. And if that is the case, then I don't, personally feel that um, uh, making prohibiting on the on on food production or category one and two soils is, should be we can take that out so mm -hmm. I, I think flexibility is important I think it's okay for you know to have um, plumbing because you know that would open it up to people that that um, that you know may need, but as you said, may need plumbing in their unit, you know, bathroom and stuff like that, unless they're, and then we'll see how, over time, how, what, what happens and, and, you know, see how many are built and go from there. I think that's, I mean, that's, that would be my, my, my sure. recommendation. Sure. Th thank you, Chair. I just wanted to uh, add one, one more thing. I uh, want to really underscore and highlight the importance of the 1980, uh, uh, plan um, that uh, the Ag and Rural Open Space Plan, um, TDR program that followed, uh, the BLT program that followed, 
Um, again, we're trying to preserve agriculture as the primary use. Um, a lot of those programs were set up um, to uh, preserve that, that area and not encourage uh, rooftops. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to take uh, housing units and mm -hmm. shift them elsewhere. The closer we get to adding plumbing, to adding the unit, it becomes to feel like a dwelling. And it, it was, again, those programs were set up with the intent of, of having uses like that uh, elsewhere. So again, I'm just, just saying from a staff perspective, that's why we yeah. put forward some of the recommendations yeah. we did. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you bringing this up. Um, I, I appreciate you bringing this up, mm -hmm. but given the, we've, it seems as if this, listen, tell me if I'm wrong, it's limited to 10 structures, correct? It, it's four days a week, mm -hmm. a maximum four days a week someone could use it, right? It's not like someone's... Well, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, if I could, so uh, for the record, Planning Director Jason Sartori, um, so the way that the ZTA is currently written, yes, it's limited to 10 structures, but it does not limit the size of those structures. structures. Is that correct? No. And it also, um, it, it's unclear what the four days means. Whether the use can be for four days, someone can only stay there for four days. Uh, so there's some clarity that needs to be done yeah. in that regard. But I don't think there are limits right now on the size of those structures. Is that right? No. And so just forgive me. What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to highlight the things that I think the most consensus mm -hmm. has occurred to not transmit because ultimately we've got to come up with a list that we are transmitting yeah, yeah, right. so forgive me with the highlighting um, I'm, I'm sensing there is, is general support to clarify what was meant by the four days um, I haven't heard whether there's support generally or not to recommend the structure size limit I, I think so I think I'm okay if you take this to yellow I'm fine to support you with the rest of the stuff there I agree that it should be a size mm -hmm limit because of what we want to make sure the integrity of the you know mm -hmm. uh, the uh, ag reserve to be done there but if we take the plumbing and development for category one and two i'm fine yeah i can go with that i would uh i mean i i understand the desire to limit to not being a robber baron's hunting lodge like that's the limit we don't want but i i don't know if the 10 by 10 is like the 10 by 10, you know, structures, uh, 10 by 10 for the resident, 10 by 10 for where the dormitory structure, or I forget what it was, sleeping, wherever. Yeah, 400 square feet. <clears throat> I want to allow as much flexibility with that as possible to, to provide, you know, what they think folks would like to have. I mean, like I said, we don't want giant hunting lodge, but I'm not sure if that's but too restrictive. But how do you stop to, it? How do you uh, stop it? If you don't put the minimum or maximum size, there, how could yeah. you stop it? But there's no other structure limits within the AR, within the Ag Reserve at the moment. There's no other structure size limits. Or there there are limits to the square footage that it can cover relative to the primary residence, right? I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, that the 10% yeah. refers to the structure, to the area of the To the area of the thing. So we have a 10% limit on the amount of structured area that could totally be covered by, a, and I realize that the square footage of a place and the square footage of a house, different things. But like, I mean, we have limits in there, how much we want to ratchet down those limits is sort of where we're, we're, we're at to a certain extent. And I, I you know, um, being stuck inside with three kids and 400 square foot structures uh, is the whole thing that gets me. And so like where, and no bathroom. And no bathroom. Um, but like where do, where do we allow for a flexibility or to an upper limit which allows the production of a variety of enough things to actually make this unit, or this, this use, 
viable and units produced that make this use viable for the broadest range of folks that do not get us into, I've managed to put a giant hunting lodge on my pasture. Like that is, I, I would like to see us be as, as broadly open to that as possible without getting to mansion style size with, with the house. That I understand there's a limit. We don't so want to see 10, 10 of those pop up. Yeah, but but 20, 400 is 20 by 20. If you are a couple with three children, I'm trying to see. It's, you have the children. I, my children are grown. I, That's I, not big enough. I want them more than 400 square feet away from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. But uh, you're going to be outside all day. Yeah, I'll be outside all day anyway. I mean, 400 but, square feet is the size of a hotel room. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a hotel room. That's so, meaning that I don't think, to the point that Commissioner Hendrick said, that's very, very tight if you have three kids in there and it's a rainy day and no bathroom. No. <laughs> I, and, and that also comes to sort of the minimum farm size and the minimum farm area that I'd, rather, I'd like us to, to take a look at, too. I mean, 25 acres is both quite large and then not you know, all that much. I, I, again, I, just, I, w I want us to be as accommodating as possible with within the restrictions of the Act Reserve to the extent that if you've got more than that and want, I, I mean, I've, I find, agri and I think part of the thing is I think that agritourism is an agricultural use at this point um, due to a lot of things, not the least of which being consolidation in the agricultural industry. Like, I think it should qualify as a more full use within an Ag Reserve, but that's sort of a different, yeah. uh, a larger question. But like, the setbacks, the minimum farm area, the minimum site size, I understand the reasons for it within, you know, trying to retain the character, but I think that offering an opportunity to be as broad as possible within the existing structures to allow this to, to actually, you know, be an economically viable option is, is something we need to take a look at. So, um, in order to move this forward, you had a question that you need to move this forward. Um, no, I mean, I was, I was maybe just going to suggest um, a potential compromise on maybe, just as an example, um, if we want to provide more flexibility for the structure size, but we retain kind of the percentage limit, which applies to sort of the, the square footage of, of what's being used here relative to the square footage of structures being used for agriculture, right? That's the, the percentage limit. Um, so maybe retain the percentage limit, but remove the, the cap on the structure size. Um, just to allow for more flexibility, and maybe to Chair Harris's point, whether or not the 10% limit is is the is the right limit, um, because the, this is the first time we're kind of moving into this area. Um, I'm not sure how kind of adjacent jurisdictions or other counties with similar farmland areas treat this in their code. Um, so it'd be interesting to find that out. But as a as a kind of early entree into this, I think the 10% limit, just to sort of see right. how is it playing out, how are farms of different sizes using this. What kind of experience are they are they looking for, and kind of are they bumping up against a limit that is kind of preventing them from realizing the full potential? Um, I, I personally don't have a problem with kind of using this as a first step. Um, I'm not sure how others feel about that, but what at, about at, a, at a minimum, if we exempt, provide an exemption. I I hear what you guys are saying, but if we put the 400 square foot at the maximum, but allow for exemption if someone has wants to have a bigger size for Jim, they can come and get an exemption. Yeah. And if we provide that, we say that what is our goal, but in certain cases, we could exempt them from that requirement as long as they stay within 10%. So, so I, I, yeah, I want to touch on that just for a second. Um, the, 
so right now, if there is an ag or an accessory ag use, there is no uh, square footage restriction on, on that. So, the, I mean, you know, you got to think barns and, uh, you know, uh, uh, associated ag uses. So there's not currently that restriction. There's, there is a restriction to 10% of the entire site area mm -hmm. for, for those structures, for those uses. So the 10% would be consistent with that. Uh, again, we were trying to make sure that these were um, smaller, truly accessory, because leaving it wide open, again, in our minds, the worst case scenario, these could become quite large they would structures. Know. So that, that, that was where, again, the recommendation mm -hmm. was coming from on creating a, a smaller yeah, uh, yeah, I understand that. that. That's what I'm suggesting, that from my point of view, if you want to keep the 400, that's fine, but allow people that they have a good, better reason to get an exemption. They have to come and cert, uh, under certain requirements, they have mm -hmm. to come to planning board and we could exempt them. But to the extent that you want some sort of dormitory structure, right? Like you have multiple dormitory structures, you have a, uh, you know, a communal bath and... and uh, kitchen facilities you may have a structure that's quite large if you want to go up to 10 you want to go up to 10 that's true. and so that structure could be fairly large but could be underneath a certain intent like use yeah. usage i mean the individual rooms themselves could be 400 you know 20 by 20 somewhere along those lines and then it could be a single structure that's the reason i don't i i i think there's i was trying to look for the reasonable upper limit on how intense the use can be is the goal right and i and i like support that. I just don't want us to limit like a 400 square foot, which is a fairly small thing. I, I, I want it to be as flexible and open as to accommodate a variety of options too. Can I? And I mean, if, if it's full enough that people are out there, the it, text amendment there's enough demand. Sorry, Ben. Go ahead. The text amendment limits. It says uh, occupants of over 18 is limited to two. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully that limits that eliminates the concern about the hunting lodge. I mean, it's intended for families. Right. Well, yeah, and I would say I, I think we, we we are not intending to have something that's like a dormitory here, right? That's okay. yeah. Um, the other thing that is that, that would technically be allowable unless sorry. Uh, that would technically be allowable unless we instituted something like the four hundred. Yes, that splits and that's the structures why we want to have one thing. Yeah, that's why I think it's a good idea. Yeah. So yeah, there are some other things on here that yeah, it, the the goal was just to be relatively small. Right, in but family size, um, you know, and and so I think there's those things in here. So I'm okay, you know. I know. I think we've opened it up for flexibility by having the plumbing. I think we've opened up for flexibility, maybe on at least on the site by the putting on whatever soils they are, because it's a small property, right? And I think I don't know if we got any other comp. Have we gotten in? Huh? I I have one. One final attempt and, and flexibility on the 400. What if the average structure size is 400, and so some could be five, 550, and others could be 250 or three? And oh, yeah. That's, it, it, that's flexibility. You could have a couple little one-bedroom chalets, and you could have a, a larger five or 600-square-foot yeah. thing. I, I, I really like that idea. I, yeah. I think that's a reasonable way to do it. If a 10 structure times... 400 square feet. Like the square yeah. footage overall must be X or Y. I think that's reasonable. I'll go slightly higher than 400 square okay. feet, but I'm not going to, like, uh, beat a dead horse. Okay. I thought there was okay. something that read that the the structures couldn't be this had to be a percentage of the size of the primary structure or dwelling unit on the property. Did I read that somewhere or see that in the slide? So they are specifically exempting sp yeah. the 
requirement because it's a cumulative, and so they're they're exempting them from the cumulative requirement that these accessory structures can't exceed 50% of the primary, which would be the farmhouse if they had one. Um, but as uh, Patrick had said, the truly accessory structures like your barns or your milking parlors or stuff are exempt anyway. Um, and, then, and so then you have that 10% limit that says 10% of the site for agritourism, including 10% of structure on the site. So you have your big barns, you know, 10% of whatever combination of that can get carved up and used for this, which I almost think in itself could be actually very restricting for small, medium-sized farms. They might not have a lot of space left, which is why I think we set out there, like, you might actually still want to exempt this use from that, but let's not remove it generally because it could cause other problems. Um, again, that's where I'm trying to come up with this average idea, which had some traction, yeah. at least yeah. it sounds like. So, Mr. Berbert, I think let's, we'll let's summarize here and see if we can move this forward. So, um, the, so I would recommend approving what the staff had recommended with the exceptions of removing the permit the item on permit prohibiting the plumbing, I, including on the limit the size structure to an average of 400 square feet. Cumulative Cumul of cumul whatever, yeah. something whatever. Like uh, yeah, is the, the cumulative average per structure, whatever, the average would be 400 square feet or less, and then uh, take out the prohibit development of land used for food production on class one and two soils. Could do you want me to do a move? I, I mean, move to approve a staff recommendation by removal the uh, prohibition of plumbing and uh, adding the average square foot of 400 and also by removing uh, the prohibition on development on category one and two soils. Mm -hmm. Can we also? Can, can I? Uh, I was going to ask for clarity on the agritourism, the ten percent limit. Um, so, do we want to maintain that ten percent limit yes. overall? Do we want to exempt this particular use? Recommend would, exempting this particular use from that limit. But I thought it was ten percent limit up to both the maximum of five acres. Was, was that the? I think which whichever is smaller. Whichever yeah. is smaller. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what. Yeah, I'm, I'm approving what you had. Yes. Oh. So that's that's for the the square footage of where the use could go on the right. site. I right. think what uh, Director Sartori is asking is, in the the current prohibition of agritourism can't be more than ten percent overall of this would start counting against that. And again, staff's having to guess here because there wasn't a, a clear intent that staff council staff may have removed that ten percent because there was concern that incidental outdoor stays would quickly push a farm over that 10%. Yeah. Um, and I think staff's oh, yeah. Yeah. deep opinion is we actually are okay with that. We want the rest of agritourism to still be limited to the 10%. That's right. exempting this yeah. from the 10 yeah. So yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. to uh, remove that one, if you yellow that. Yeah. Oh, if you yellow that, so do I have to say everything again, or I could say that exempt <laughs> the incidental from 10%. Yeah, because they may already be at 10% for yes. something else. And this would allow for oh, the okay, yes. okay, great. It's not, it's not extra. So you're, you're amending the motion to also 
add exempt, exempt incidental from 10%. Yes. yes. Do I need to say it again, or this is good? <laughs> nah, we keep track. Just take a screenshot of the PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Two, two other questions on the 100 foot I unmuted Mitra and I muted myself. Uh, are we retaining the 100 foot setbacks? Because we do have a setback requirement already in the AR, in the Ag Reserve, correct? What is that setback? In? I believe it's 50 feet now. Okay. Um, I, I, I still think we think the 100 feet's appropriate. We are adding uses to, we are adding sort of overnight uses, potentially up to 10 of them mm -hmm. to a property that didn't have it before. And, you know, I think I'm trying to be fair to a neighbor mm -hmm. that might I'm have lived there that. or other I, I'll let smoke travels, noise travels. I'm just trying to be sensitive to, to that. Yep, yeah, uh, yeah, some screening without, and some other Without things. the food production in the, the category one and two soils, I think it makes a lot more sense to, to increase that for that. I, I'm okay with that. And then the other one to amend, and I'm, you can kick me in a second, Mitra, after I, I just clarify this one. Uh, the minimum farm area is five, recommending a five acre minimum farm size and a maximum of five acres overall. Is that right? 25? 25 acres. 25 acres is the top max. And either 10% or five acre of that site area, okay. whichever smaller. All right. How, just out of curiosity, um, how many farms approximately kind of fall under the 25 acre number? Just, um, just to clarify before, if you have an answer to that, I think what we're saying is a 25 acre minimum. Minimum. Mm -hmm. Or the, the farm is 25 acre minimum, so the, yeah. Right, so, so you right. need to be larger right. than 20. I, yeah, that's, that, 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 that concerns me on size, but I don't know how many we have that are under 25. That I mean, do you have a viable farm option at this point in Montgomery County that's under 25 acres that's actually, it's very small? Actually, there are farm fields that are less than 25 Well, there are less than 25, but they're What's not. What's the, could, could you clarify the concern? I, I understand that the minimum lot size for kind of, I guess, a dwelling unit is... 25, but is there a specific environmental or other concern? I think our concern is once you start getting to less than 25 acres, and I think this is part of the premise is why 25 acres was picked in the 1980s for the new track size, that was sort of seen as the minimum lot size that you could do a house with improvements on a few acres and still have farming, mm -hmm. and I understand there are definitely smaller farms in that. I think the concern we have is if you have a 10-acre farm, to now find room for up to 10 of these, you really are taking a lot of the farm out okay. to basically just become a small boutique hotel at that point. Yes. Um, and so yeah, that's sort of our nexus, is 25 acres has sort of been established as sort of the minimum viable farm size design. by creating the 25-acre yeah. lot size okay. in the 80s. It just it was a good starting point for us to, yeah. to work on. That that makes sense. Except I'm I'm wondering if I mean if we consider 25 acres to be minimally viable for farming in general, I mean wouldn't we consider this to be sort of a necessary or a, a, a real value add for farms of a lower size in particular if they can't sort of maximize their farm potential if they are a smaller farm? I mean I, the answer would be sure. I just think we're it's no longer. We're no longer in the definition of farming. We're hoteling, yeah. I think, if yeah. you're doing yeah. that, which is a, yeah. I think we could have that debate. I just feel like that's not the yeah. use that's yeah. been presented to us, and that's why yeah. we haven't gone there. Yeah. And just a, um, so we do have uh, some data that was included in the agritourism study um, a, a while back now. Um, just so we're clear, uh, as of 2017, there were a little over 100 farms in Montgomery County that were less than 10 acres. Uh, there were a few hundred farms that were between 10 and 49 acres, and then there was about 150 or more farms 
uh, that were uh, greater than, than 50 acres in size. And as the ag reserve, uh, as that area uh, over time becomes a little more and a little more increasingly fragmented, you can imagine that the size of farms in general is uh, shrinking while the number of smaller farms is growing. So uh, it's a general trend, um, but that, to answer your questions on the number and size of farms, th those are approximate numbers. Of, as of 2017, we're about to get an update from the 22 uh, uh, numbers that we should have any time now and be able to update that and give you yeah. an idea of where the trend is heading. We suspect in the same direction. <laughs> okay, so I think we're, if you're all good, uh, yep. I, we're, we're ready. So, <laughs> so the the um, recommendation is, I think it's, it stays the same. Nothing changes. Uh, we never had a second on this um, recommendation. I'll second. All right. All right. Third. You were turned on. You get it. <laughs> the kick walk. <laughs> uh, yeah. All in. Uh, all in favor. Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, is it clarity on what we just voted on? Just okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I look at Rachel and she shakes her head. So the answer is yes. Uh, all right. So we're we're going to take uh, just a two minute break and we're going to go to one that I'm sure Mr. Burbert's going to say is more simple than the last one. It's number eight, which is zoning text amendment ZTA 2310 parking, queuing, and loading calculation of required public parking. Thank you.
we're 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 live now. So we're good afternoon. We're on item number eight, zoning text amendment ZTA twenty three dash one zero parking queuing and loading calculation of required parking where staff is recommending transmitting comments to the district council. And uh, we have Mr. Berbert from the planning staff presenting this, this ZTA. Thank you. All right, thank you. I tried to save the, the hardest for last. Um, okay, 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 okay. So again, Ben Berbert with the Montgomery County Planning Department, countywide planning and policy. Uh, before you, we are gonna discuss ZTA 2310, parking, queuing and loading, calculation of required parking. I don't know who names these things. Um, staff is recommending the planning board transmit a memo to the district council that supports uh, ZTA 2310 um, with a couple of recommendations. Uh, the first one is I think something that staff has caught that we think needs to be modified to make sure the intent of the ZTA can be fully achieved um, by modifying a, a subsection in code we'll discuss later. Um, we broadly want to redefine BRT stations as non-rail transit way stations, and we'll explain why for that in a moment. Um, and you know, we have a little bit of concerns over parking lot districts and, and what this may or may not do to them. Um, I think here we're just asking the board to transmit that there are concerns. I don't think we have solutions. They're not really our purview to, to solve, but we are aware there's a, a concern there. Um, this CTA was introduced on November 28th by uh, now Council President Friedson and Council Members Glass and Mink. Uh, the entire council has since co-sponsored this ZTA. Uh, it's going for a public hearing January 16th, 2024. Um, and again, this adjusts the vehicle parking allowed for residential projects that are within certain distances of defined transit systems to no longer have to provide the baseline minimum parking. Um, one of the, the big reasons that Council had introduced this ZTA was hopefully to help the affordable housing or housing affordability and production in general. Um, you know, parking is expensive. It's not $70,000 of space when you're doing above grade parking, but it can get that expensive when below grade, and that's really what we push for near our metro stations to maximize what can happen above grade. Um, and again, we're also, just as a planning department, generally looking for ways that we can reduce car dependency and create more places for people and less places for vehicles. Um, you know, and, and sort of the benefit of this ZTA is it continues on the existing market-based approach that we have where a developer ultimately can decide how much parking their project needs, um, except currently to get less than sort of that baseline minimum, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. Um, this would just make it a lot easier to provide less parking if you determine your project doesn't need it. If you think your project does need it, you can come and ask the board to provide more parking. Um, and this doesn't inherently retroactively change the requirements. This doesn't also stop somebody from coming in and doing a site plan amendment to maybe amend the site plan to say that we want less of the parking to count towards us. Maybe they could then lease it to a neighboring project who wants to then use some of the spaces. Um, but all that kind of stuff would have to come back to the board because right now they have, everybody has agreements for how much parking is associated with their project. Um, so again, as introduced, uh, there is a section in the parking set part of the code that's called adjustment to vehicle parking and that's kind of where all the other things that applicants use now to reduce parking live. This would add a new eight parking minimum near transit and it would exempt, exempt as I said, residential uses from those parking minimums uh, within a half mile of a metro station, a half mile of a purple line station, or a quarter mile um, and as it introduced of a bus rapid transit station um, that's either 
existing or has been funded for construction in the six-year CIP at the time of application. Um, so this is just residential, it's not for mixed use? Because so, we don't have residential that much. Everything is mixed use. The way I would interpret that is the residential part of the building would not have to provide parking, but if the commercial ground floor or floors required parking, they would still have to provide or use other mechanisms that they currently can by code to remove that parking. So, right, if, it, if it's a, you know, the building across the street that has ground floor commercial and, and residential above, the residential could go to zero, but the few spaces that commercial would still require either okay. need to be provided or bought out through the okay. parking lot district. Okay, so whatever. it still counts even though that is a mixed use. Okay, got it. That was, I didn't know. Thanks. Um, so in the code now, there's a lot of ways that applicants can reduce their parking. Um, there are abilities to reduce parking standards for affordable housing, age-restricted housing, uh, certain religious assembly can apply for parking reductions, um, making your parking available as sort of shared parking in a, a mixed-use environment, you can reduce total parking. Um, providing car share spaces allows you to reduce parking. Unbundling parking from leases is a common one we see where you can reduce parking for doing that. Uh, federal agencies have their own parking ratios. Um, and then you have your parking lot districts, uh, downtown Silver Spring, downtown Bethesda, Montgomery Hills, mm -hmm. and here in Wheaton, um, where you can just pay an annual tax and not provide any parking, and that goes to help maintain the public garage and parking systems. Um, and then there's the ability to just ask for a parking waiver. Um, in the past 10 years, we've had at least 10 projects in the county that have used one or many of these combined to reduce parking below the baseline minimum. Um, the one thing they all kind of did have in common is they were near our metro stations. So it's sort of painting the picture as to why this ZTA is sort of the next evolution of, of this. Um, again, we talked about the, the four parking lot districts before. I think the concern- Can I just ask one, excuse me. Sure. So the, the PLD's parking lot district, so if you're in a parking lot district, you don't have to provide parking, but you have to pay into the, that fee. Correct, right. so you're uh, assessed an annual tax basically for not providing the baseline minimum parking per the county's website on how the system works. Um, and so that's really the concern I think staff could see is that there could be a long-term funding problem if more and more projects are able to come in and not have to pay that fee. Um, and again, it's, it's sort of complicated because this is sort of run by DOT, it's really their thing. I, I'm aware that I think council's aware this could be a problem. I think there's going to be some discussions forthcoming on it. Um, you know, we're aware that it could be a problem. I think it's a little hard to measure how big of a problem. Um, and again, part of that's going to be based on how many applicants retroactively amend site plans to take away the parking requirement, and then that could take away the fee. I, I think right. there's. But if they didn't, just say they said, I, I can get out because I'll just pay the fee. If, but wouldn't the people, but that's assuming the people that, you're not building the parking because those, you tell those folks you, there's a garage next door, park in the garage. Wouldn't they get their fee from the payments and the people paying to, live, to pay in that, to park in that garage or? So the county definitely charges, you know, you can buy a monthly parking pass and, and park in those garages. I, I honestly don't know enough about the funding mechanisms and, and balanced budgeting of PLDs okay. to know what percentage comes from the property 
sort of tax assessment versus the parking revenues. And so there might be ways of, of making this back. It's just not an expertise I have. Okay. Thank you. So are you going to coordinate with DOT or you going, you think that the council staff would coordinate with DOT? Because this is, I know that this is a big revenue and this is an issue for the PLDs. Is it our job to coordinate with DOT and provide response here or is it that the uh, DOT is going to send their comments straight to the council? I mean, we can certainly reach out to them. I would suggest from the purpose of commenting to council, I think they need to be their own advocate in this. It really isn't our purview. Um, I think we can make them aware of it. And I think Mr. Cronenberg might have something to add here. Uh, Robert Cronenberg, for the record, if I can add a little bit of clarity to that. So in the, uh, Ben's right that in the PLDs, there used to be a tax, an ad valorem tax that was assessed based on the parking, the kind of the, the delta between what you're providing and what you're not providing. You can go down to zero, but then you're paying the tax between the, you know, that delta. Um, so, you know, if you had a requirement, then you had zero, whatever was the, uh, was the difference you were paying. Uh, the county has not assessed that tax in many years. Um, and so there's no tax being collected, uh, to my knowledge at this point. Um, and the parking garages themselves are not, um, they're a revenue source for the PLD and for the county. Uh, but there's not a reliance on the projects and the development in the downtowns for that, for the, you know, for that revenue, um, specifically, you know, for development. The way that the code is written is the parking lots uh, or the parking garages, in most cases, um, they're there to, sat the, the, the tax was there to satisfy maintenance and upkeep. It was not to satisfy a parking requirement. So hopefully that provides a little clarity for you. Um, so getting into recommendations for the ZTA, the first one, as I mentioned earlier, um, in that sort of section I, the uh, adjustments to parking, uh, letter B under that has the current code that says that adjustments under the section uh, to the minimum number of required parking spaces must not result in a reduction below 50% of the baseline parking minimum or shared parking model minimums. Um, I believe this was an oversight by council to not catch that this is here. I believe the intent's to get us to zero if somebody wants to. This wouldn't without um, changing it, so our recommendation is to otherwise exempt section eight below, which is the new section for near transit. Um, so you're basically saying this doesn't apply to anything under this near transit requirement. That's, yes. that's what essentially is making sure that that's clear. Um, the next one is to go into uh, Section C of the new part of the code um, that's relying on bus rapid transit as one of the three sort of metrics to allow you to implement the reduced parking. Um, it, defining BRT gets a little complicated. I think in the past in the code when we've used BRT as one of the transit options that would qualify you like for the BioHealth Priority Campus or the Mixed Income Campus that we've taken forward it always qualified around planned. And so it's a little more intuitive to say, well, we know what the planned routes and stations are, we can apply that. 
now that we're dealing with existing, um, there was a little concern that, you know, what is BRT to one person might not be to another. And so is, are the improvements that they did for Flash on 29 really BRT? Um, you know, the answer probably is yes from the county's eyes and to a lot of people, but maybe not everyone. Um, the other thing we have is, you know, we keep planning and we keep modifying routes, we keep adding routes, changing routes. Um, and so the kind of lowest common denominator to capture all of this change was to use non-rail transit way because that's the new sort of defined term in the functional plan of highways and transit ways. Um, and that would also just clear up the idea that, you know, improvements of high quality transit were made on 29 and that's a non-rail transit way, therefore those would count. Um, so that's sort of the reason for this change. I think it doesn't, in our mind, change the intent at all. It just makes it cleaner and easier for us to implement as projects come forward in the future. Um, Again, we did a climate assessment on this, planning Wait, staff. Can I just ask one question? So sure. it's, it's any BRT station, in, not, a, not a... That's existing or that's been, that is in the capital plan. So in this instance, the Flash 29 exists, and we have Veers Mill and Rockville, uh, parts of Rockville Pike are now in the capital budget. And so we've sort of assumed those, the, the quarter-mile buffers around those three corridor stations would be able to start applying for this once this were approved. Okay, all right, thank you. Um, so in the climate assessment prepared by planning staff, we do find that there could be slight to moderate, moderate positive impacts on greenhouse gas emissions um, because this would hopefully encourage more uh, either car light or car less households um, and encourage more walking. It's a little difficult to measure how big of an impact. I think these areas are already sort of robust for that lifestyle anyway, but this will just go that much further to making that a reality. Um, we also think there could be slight positive impacts on the community resilience and adaptive capacity, kind of for the same reasons, reducing auto dependency, creating denser places and more places that inherently community can kind of gather and help each other out in times of need. Um, so in conclusion, um, staff is recommending to the board transmit that uh, memo to district council supporting the CTA modifying the section to exempt the parking near transit from the 50% reduction limit and to change BRT stations to non-rail transit way um, and to just acknowledge that, you know, we want to make sure that PLDs have continued to function. It sounds like they may have a, a path they've they figured out, um, but I think just making sure everybody's aware that that is out there. So that concludes our presentation. I have one. <coughs> I have a general comment question. Um, thank you for clarifying this. Um, when I first learned of this, I thought it was going to be a mandatory reduction in parking as opposed to a permissive reduction in parking. And this is all it's about is like allowing a developer or property owner to reduce the minimum required parking. But if they'd like to reduce the minimum required parking, they would be allowed to do so, correct? Okay, thanks. I have a question. Um, when I was reading the uh, ZTA, um, you talked about how they decide, and you didn't make any comment about the measurement of one quarter or half a mile. Um, I think it's important to be inaccessible for people, you know, if. Um, 
they are using the transit. Uh, if you are talking the walk shed of half a mile or quarter mile, they should be able to walk. If we go like the way that you called it, uh, bird view, that it just connected and there is no connection, then how do they get to their place unless that it may be a much longer uh, distance to walk? Yeah, I think we, we definitely shared that same concern. The reason we haven't made a motion here on that, um, it's partly because you know, this is one of many places where we define things that can happen because of your proximity to transit or other land uses. And so to sort of address this holistically, what really wants to be added to the code is a clear definition on how you'd actually perform that measurement. And that would nicely fit in a different section of code where it sort of is like rules that apply to the whole ordinance. Um, and because that was not introduced as part of the CTA, we can't do it now. I think what staff was hoping to hear is that this is a problem we want to address. And in the spring, we could come back maybe with a ZTA that we would propose introduction of to add that section. Um, and we could do a more robust presentation describing how is DPS doing the measurement now? What are some of the options that we could discuss as to what we would recommend it be in the future? Um, okay, so can we add a recommendation that a ZTA would come in future to discuss? Uh, we need to do that. So I think that right now as it is, it puts it in limbo. Um, it's a big limbo in my opinion. Um, but I totally understand what you're saying. And under the conclusion, maybe we should add another bullet point that, uh, you know, uh, we need another, if you believe that ZTA is the right, right way, uh, we need another ZP, ZTA to define, especially if given to DPS, DPS needs a tool to know how to enforce it or how to measure it. That, that needs to be done. I guess a quick question I would have, um, I think our, our thought was we would do the work and have the board be the introductor of it. Would you want me to phrase it more that we think it's needed and expect to see it from us? Whatever or you, okay you like, you think is the right way. I'm right. just saying that it should have to be a mention that this issue is not resolved. What works for you the best, I'm fine with it. As long as it's just something pointed that we need to do this and we cannot really enforce it until that is done. I think, I, I, to the point about introducing a new ZTA, kind of covering that and maybe potentially other things, um, I just want to say I, I agree that we'll probably want to continue this conversation moving forward using this as kind of a, a really good building step. Um, thanks for you know, bringing this and having us discuss this. I know this came from council, but I, this, is, this is a tremendous first step, and I just want to emphasize first step because I think that, um, in my view, uh, we should try to make these, these, this parking reform as expansive as possible, mm -hmm. um, ideally countywide in some form or, or another. Um, it has you know, all the positive impacts that you talked about, obviously with regard to affordable housing, um, reducing housing costs in general. We know that. Um, but I think it has tremendous other potential implications as well, particularly related to our, our goals of, of mode shift and encouraging kind of less car dependent um, lifestyles, as, as you mentioned as well. Um, so with, you know, we can talk about maybe what kind of future iterations of this might, might be. Um, but I think with, with regard to this particular ZTA, 
and I guess the, the scope in which we're sort of operating. Um, I, I, I have a few uh, considerations I, I think that maybe we should, we should talk about and consider. Um, first, related to the distance thing, we, we'll come back to that. I, I think that as the crow flies, just to make it as expansive as possible, sort of the radial distance, if we are going to use a catchment area approach, I think that is preferable because it includes more potential developable properties. Um, in addition to that, I think that we should consider adding mark service, mark stations, um, to, to the list of transit services. Um, I think that we should probably be consistent with, if we're going to use a geographic scope consistent with half mile across the board instead of using a quarter mile for BRT, we're envisioning BRT to be really high amenity, quality service, transit lines. I think people, um, not only, I think people will be more than willing to, to walk or bike or stroll or whatever the case is. Um, beyond a quarter mile to BRC, uh, BRT stations. Um, and on top of that, I think that we should at least consider adding um, other high-frequency bus routes, whether that be WMATA or Ride-On to this list as well. Um, frequency can change, so I know that's perhaps hard to sort of capture in, in code. Um, also, the definition of high-frequency can change. Um, but I think that, you know, in the interest of being as expansive as possible and knowing that service really does drive ridership. And so people will, will take the bus more often, be more willing to take the bus if it's a high service line. Yeah. It doesn't have to be BRT. Um, and so along, st along stops where those high service lines exist, I think that we should consider applying or recommending applying this, this, uh, this CTA as well. Um, Maybe I'll, I'll stop. Maybe I'll stop there for now to see <laughs> what, what the thoughts are so, there. But uh, <laughs> we can continue talking about other things so, too. So I just have a question. So, so is your point is to see how to add it into the ZTA, or is it to say that you recommend staff working on a ZTA that that could amend this to not? I mean, in the to to can implement. Or I don't know if there's some studies they need to may need to be done, but to, thinking about adding adding near mark stations, um, BRT up to mm -hmm. a half mile, and then at Wamata bus stops if there's a high frequency of uh, I, I'm just no. I, I I would defer to to staff about what the best approach is. My I I hope that we could at least cover some of that in here. I know that you're using tr non rail transit ways as a catch all to 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 allow for kind of different definitions and types and um, would it be, you know, does, does that include mark potentially? If so, then maybe we don't need to specify mark. But if it doesn't include mark, maybe adding that in in addition to non-rail mm -hmm. transit ways. Um, and then we can talk separately maybe about high, high frequency, you know, uh, bus um, and, and how to apply that. Yeah, I'll, what I will say is we actually are internally talked about the high frequency bus and for reasons I think you're expressing, we decided not to try to get it in here now, but I think we can certainly have that conversation going forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with Mark, I think w we hear you, and I think if that is the direction the full board wants to take, we can get behind that. I think in the past we haven't included it um, because it is very, like, unidirectional. You get five trains a day. Like, you still kind of need a car if you live near a Mark yeah. station most of the time. Um, Hopefully that can change at some point, and I know it becomes chicken and the egg of like, well, yeah. will it change yeah. because you've added the development? Our experience is no. It mm -hmm. never actually, it never actually, unfortunately, drives the investment change. But um, 
So that's that's why it's not here. But if that's something the board really yeah. thinks yeah. we need to start well, promoting, we can. That I appreciate that, and um, I think kind of understanding what has happened around those stationaries obviously is is important. But I think the relevant point here is that you know we're not mandating, and so I think. My yeah. preference would be to be, again, as expansive as possible. And it's not a mandate. It's just allowing what they feel like they need. Um, and so in that sense, if they do feel like they need more around a mark station, totally fine. But I don't think that we should be sort of differentiating necessarily. If we're going to use transit, if we're going to use proximity as the basis for this DC, uh, ZTA, I think it, it makes sense, at least in my view, to include, although it may be today relatively low service, bi-directional during the peak hours. In the future, these could be really you know, high-frequency lines. And I think that we, sh you know, as a community, should be pushing for that as well. Yeah. Um, so you know, in, the in, in the interest in being forward-looking, I would, I would encourage including MARC stations. And hopefully, many of those station areas can you know, change in the future. Um, and then the, on the high-frequency bus side, is it, is it more complicated because we would need, the, would that, for example, require a separate ZTA to sort of include a, de a definitional change? Yeah. I, I think if we, I mean, we could put it in the CTA and it would just, the definition of high frequency bus would have to just get codified into the section and whatever yeah. the metric, whether it's, you know, certain amount of headway during peak period or multiple lines maybe. I think yeah. there's stuff that we'd have to figure out and I, I'd see Dave, who's probably more of a subject expert on this than me, wants to chime in, so. Yeah, Dave. David Onsbacher, Acting Division Chief. Um, I think we do have some concerns with this. It is very difficult to define and therefore measure. As we know, um, even high-frequency bus lines can change. Uh, the stations can change. Uh, obviously, Mark, Purple Line, Red Line, and BRT, the stations are largely fixed, so we don't have that concern with them. Um, but then, even if, even if the lines were to um, the high-frequency bus stations were to be more fixed. I think another concern is frequency changes. Frequency can be very difficult to measure from hour to hour um, based on operations. Those operations change. It just gets very difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. um, we can continue to think about it. I, I'm just not sure that we're you know, ready at this point to, have, mm -hmm. uh, to be fully behind that. And if I could uh, also provide um, a kind of a source of comparison here. Uh, about four or five years ago, the county council made changes to uh, through ZTA to our AD ADU, our accessory dwelling unit regulations. One of them was to exempt parking requirements for ADUs within one mile yeah. of mark rail stations, purple line stations, and red line stations. So um, just as a point of reference of another place where they've included mark, uh, mm -hmm. but also went farther uh, in terms of the, the, the scope of that. Yeah. yeah. I think that, um, sorry, I'll just say one more thing then. James, I'll turn I'm back to you. I'm just going to repeat most of what you said. Um, I, that makes sense. You know, the high-frequency um, um, challenges, that makes sense. Um, I think there's something to be said for kind of if we develop at, at scale and density in some, in some areas, it's less likely in the future those areas will have less service, I, hopefully. Um, but again, chicken and the egg. So I, I yeah, personally, I, that makes sense. I'm, I'm comfortable sort of leaving that out. Um, but it is interesting, you know, that we've made certain decisions about kind of catchment scope um, in, in a more expansive direction. And I would actually be interested in doing that as well if, if we had support for that, maybe to mm -hmm. include, you know, up to suggesting up to one mile um, across the board, BRT, 
Mark, Metro, Purple Line. Um, I think that's something that, again, if we're going to use geographic catchment as, as the, the proxy for yeah. having a non-car or limited car lifestyle, although I think we should maybe do this countywide in some, in some form, I think up to a mile um, would, would sound good to me. Mr. Yeah. Linden, are you, are you suggesting it be mandatory or permissive? That's, that's Permissive in the same sense that we see it here, where just removing the minimum requirement, so developers will be able to to build what they feel is is necessary. Um, of course, we would, for many of these, we would continue to see site plans come in, so we would have a say as well. Yeah. But removing minimums, I think, is and as we've seen around the country, um, as you all are, of course, well aware of, this is increasingly done in in cities and urban counties. Um, both for housing affordability and for kind of environmental sustainability reasons. Yeah. You, other, you have a comment? I, I will go through very quickly because Josh uh, got most of them. Uh, I would like to include Mark as part of the thing. Recommend that we include Mark trains in there. It, it is, it is an endless cycle of chicken and the egg. But I would go forward looking on that, and there are places where it would be a useful, a useful thing. Again, we're 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 doing minimum, so Astor and Clumart. Also, uh, as Commissioner Linda mentioned, the half mile universal. I would take a half mile universal, um, at least over those stations, including BRT. Um, I also support a mile um, around it as well, um, if we can get three votes for that. Um, again, you talked about the measurement in there. I would rec still recommend the radiate the straight line measurement around as the as the preferred one. And I, I, I was interested in that the DPS's current version is if it if any part falls within the whole part falls within the whole plot falls within. I would recommend retaining that in whatever version we have in the in a future. If we recommend a future ZTA for that as well. Um, Again, with the with the frequent but frequent bus routes, I mean, if we tied it to something along the lines of number of routes or something like that, there's like six Q routes that come by my house. Like it's it's not so much that the Q2 is better than the Q4, but they all get me where I'm kind of going. Um, so like if we can work out something like that, I'd absolutely support us putting high frequency bus routes in there as well, either with Ride On or or um, or, or Wamata, um, Headways and Peak Periods, whatever is the best option for that, because the the whole purpose is moving people, and if it moves people well. Given the benefit, we have the infrastructure. Let's, in you know, invest in the areas around that infrastructure. Um, also, I think this is beyond the step, the scope of this uh, uh, particular ZTA. But as I mentioned, with parking requirements countywide, um, some ZTA that addresses the the parking requirements for residential uses countywide, I think would be useful, or some recommendation from us. I think it's two per residential unit in most of the non CBD. Yeah, any if we if we are going to sort of produce uh, a ZTA, a, 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 you know, uh, for them to consider, I would I would encourage us to look at what how to reduce those restrictions countywide and reduce those minimums that we have for uh, you know residential uses, as we did with ADUs, you know, reducing those. That was tied to transit geographically, but to do something where we we minimize that sort of countywide to sort of encourage that sort of development that's got access and things like that. So something to, something to consider as we move forward. Uh, and then I would, I don't know how to best say, promote or encourage or at least acknowledge that site plan amendments are possible and make that a something that is notified as much as possible or at least publicized to the extent that this is not retroactive, but site plan amendments are an option that you have. 
And I would like to see that sort of like publicized as much as we can, a little bit, again, beyond the scope of the, the ZTA specifically. And anyway, Josh caught most of my other bullet points on my notes, so I think we're good. Yeah, thank you. So I have a, just a couple comments on how, what is Mark ridership like these days? I mean, it, um, is it, you know, is it, I don't I mean, just in general, is it? Um, not, not great. Not great. Okay, all right. Uh, I don't have an exact number for you, but I, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a huge player. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, maybe ten to 15,000 boardings is, sticks in my head, mm -hmm. but it's, it's nowhere near what Metro Rail yeah. or Ride on R. Then you can, but you can see the spike, too, when they shut the red line down several years ago, is that it has considerably more capacity than is currently being used. They shut right. the red line down during the summer for several months, and that was... Okay. So yeah, my other comment is um, question: What's the difference between you, we talked a, like a a non is a a bus could a bus station be considered the same as a non rail station? Is if it's a high frequency? I, I'm just trying to. Will you say so? It's just assumed that that um, the be be be. BLT station is going to be a high frequency, high connected. Every station is going to. That's the. Is that the? The idea of stations are that they're defined in the master plan of highways and transitways. So if if you know anyone in the public, staff, whoever looks at the master plan of highways and transitways, those stations are defined, or they can be added as part of a capital project. Okay. By MCDOT, we don't have a uh, a standard um, about high frequency or number of ridership that makes a station qualify. Here, it's just is it in the master plan of highways and transitways? Okay, it's, it's a well, and those stations are are stations. They're they're constructed as stations. They're not just bus stops, right? So where, that could be moved across the street or a hundred feet down the road. That the, they're they're built up because. Um, the, the curb comes up to the, the, the height of the, right. the bus entry. So there, there are a number of things that are established there that are more significant. So they don't move once they're built. Correct. I was just thinking it could be that um, one of those stations provides no more riders than another bus stop in a, in a urban area that moves a lot of people, but the buses just come every five minutes, right? In, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's, I'm just trying to compare what, you know, its impact other than it's in a master plan is a bus rapid, BRT, bus rapid transit station, right? I mean, its, go, its goal is to move a lot of people, but other, a bus, another bus stop can move just as many people, right? But it's just not a bus rapid transit station. Great. Stations that are in the master plan of highways and transways are intended to have very high ridership. Right. Um, if, if through analysis uh, we find that the ridership is, is going to be lower, they typically do not move forward into design and are moved, removed from the master plan of highways and transways. That said, it's certainly possible that there could be some local bus stops that have very high ridership that could approach or in some instances be higher than our lowest uh, 
our, our BRT stations <coughs> with the loadless ridership. But again, right. BRT stations and stations okay. in the master plan and highways and transitways are intended to have very high ridership. Okay, great, great. Thank you. Thank you. That. So uh, let's go. Where are we now? So the the it says conclusion modifies section. Can we just go through what's in each of these sections again so we can move forward with? Um, so I think everybody agrees with the first bullet, which is to get this provision out of being caught up in that 50% maximum reduction clause, and mm -hmm. that's what the first bullet does. Mm -hmm. um, second bullet on its own, I think, is, as everybody agrees with, we can use the Mashpin Highway and Transitways transitway definition. Um, again, I think from what I'm hearing, maybe this is something we do bring back in the spring with the ZTA. We have a little more time to think about yep. if there is a, a reasonable way to measure this or, or what this means. I, I don't think staff is super prepared today to right. figure out what the high capacity transit looks like, but we can certainly study it further. Yeah, it would bring it back. Um, so that's what's in there. What the other things that we've heard, I think there seems to be consensus to add Mark. Um, there's still the one mile versus half mile. I don't think I've heard more than two people definitely what, say they what, would do what, a mile. We, what, put all the things, so I'm just understanding where we, where, yeah. Um, uh, and that is, that is one mile versus half mile. I think you, the, originally there was three measurements, a quarter for something, a half for something, and a half. What, what, so it, was, it was half for Metro and Purple Line and quarter for the bus transitways. Okay. And, um, and so right, I agree with this half mile radius. I, I'm, for what you said, for transit, Metro, and what did you say? The, BLT? Yes. Okay. And Mark, yeah. and Mark. Right, you're right. And so um, if someone said there, but my concern about Mark, and you just tell me if I'm thinking of this wrong, if just say uh, there was a Mark station and nothing pretty much else around it, right? I mean, you know, are we, so you're, what this ZTA says, if it's a, that situation that that, if, a, if, a, property was in, a development was a, a half mile away from it, then it would not have to have parking. Is that what it's saying? Just if it's a mark alone. Yes, if, if that were passed, or if that were recommended and then ultimately passed by the council and Mark were added to the list at a half mile, any residential project in any zone that's within that half mile radius would be able to not provide the parking minimums if they chose. I, I just wanted to clarify my, my thinking behind adding Mark. It's, it's really not, it's not as much considering what the service is today. It's sort of thinking about like this is, this is built infrastructure mm -hmm. that we have mm -hmm. that connects to other things like Metro, connects to Purple Line once it get down to Silver Spring. Um, it has other connections to, I assume, different or at least close by connections to future BRT stations. Mm -hmm. It's really imagining a future where we, you know, we push the state of Maryland to like dramatically increase funding to improve service. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's more akin to sort of like today it's thought of as commuter rail. It's more akin to sort of like a regional rail system right. where you have like all day long two way 
pretty frequent, like every 15 to 30 right. minute service. And it's really, it's, it's mostly a funding issue. Like we're, we're actually really fortunate to have such built infrastructure right. basically ready to go. It's really just a funding issue. So it's the kind of, it's the kind of infrastructure where I'm really optimistic that in the future we can very quickly mm -hmm. make big service improvements. Right. And if so, I think having this policy in place to include that will sort of be ready to go. Right. Like the ground will be kind of prepared right. and will right. be set. So, so I'm okay with that if, how, how many opportunities are for the MARC connect to other rail stations? I mean, you saw it at Silver Spring. Is there other um, places where they can connect to? It connects at Rockville. Connects at Rockville. It connects at Rockville. There's okay. a station at Rockville that connects the Red Line. Okay. All but right. I have a question in that regard. Market station may not be in the urban area. It may be in the rural areas, okay? Mm. The problem is that if you don't provide parking, that some people may need to have a car to go grocery shopping or anything else because not other amenities mm -hmm. are available because they're not. But they have the option under this. So. I think that gets to sort yeah. of what Commissioner Barley was talking about before. This is, it's more permissive than mandatory. It really is permissive, not mandatory. And okay. I think that if developers are building in an area that's more rural, they're probably gonna determine on their own that they need more parking okay. there. Yeah. I've got it, great. Okay, so, um, and then the, one mile versus half mile was for what specific again? Just the... So, I mean, there's an infinite number of ways this could go. So right now the ZTA has a, the half mile for the, the purple line and the metro station and the quarter mile for the BRT. The sort of initial recommendation was let's make them all half mile. And then there was support from, I believe, at least two of the board members to actually make them all one mile. And I'm assuming that would also apply to mark stations, the same, treat them all the same. So assuming we're gonna add mark to the recommendation, I feel like there is consensus there. Um, I'm, I need to know, is the board recommending we go to a mile radius around these or does the board want to do a half mile for all of them? Or does the board want to split okay, and do a mile and some? I have a question because if it is not a walking for people to come, that one mile may end up to be two miles, depending how you measure it. So I think that this should come. This changing half a mile or one mile should come when we are going to define how to measure it, and then see that if it is a walkable, uh, you know. Is that uh, what do we mean and how we could do it? I, I, one mile is perfectly fine, in my opinion, if you can walk it. But if yeah. you cannot walk it, it could be two miles. It could be two and a half miles. And that would be not easy for some older people to walk. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, I, I get your point uh, about can you really walk it? You know, and uh, I, my house is about, about 0.7 miles from the Tacoma Metro Station, and it's people can easily walk it from lots of directions, and that's a, you know, people take the metro big time. So if it were just a half mile, I mean, I think it, I think it should be more than a half mile, but I think it should be walk. You can really truly walk. Well, we also, I mean, we also require the developments produ produce infrastructure improvements when they come in. I mean, we're we're going to be allowing for with this development if we expand it, mm -hmm. and it does make things pencil out that would not otherwise pencil out. That includes offsite and onsite infrastructure mm -hmm. improvements. We're mm -hmm. producing the walkable situation that we want, and if it's not, 
then they build it at the parking minimums they need and it doesn't matter. But right. it doesn't change anything they would otherwise be. Right. But we and don't just require it to be one mile or two miles. You know, if we ask them to build the infrastructure, mm -hmm. it may be two miles of walking. Because we don't require that. Uh, in my opinion, uh, it all depends how you measure it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One mile is walkable. But yeah. if you measure it radius and there is no walking, it could go uh, it could be two or three. I, I think it's I think it's a it's a fair point, and obviously uh, people have different needs and abilities, and so walking to some person means something different for someone else. But I think it it I know we're you know we don't have to dwell on this forever. But I I just wanted to point out again that like proximity to transit is really just one rationale for removing minimums. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that it's certainly not the only rationale, and it may not even be the most important rationale depending upon what the challenge is. Obviously, we want to encourage people to use transit, and so this is one way of promoting that, that particular lifestyle, but it also really relates to housing costs. And um, you know, we see around the country that like some cities across the board are removing minimums citywide. Some counties, I think, that are more urban have done the same. Um, you know, some states have required cities above a certain size to remove ma uh, mandatory minimums across the board. So I think what we're considering here is actually kind of a, a limited form of reform that very much should be a starting point and mm -hmm. not kind of the, the maximum constraint. And, and for that reason, I think we should be as expansive as possible. Yeah. I think one mile from transit station is better than half a mile, but it's not, good as, not as good as countywide, which I think ultimately we should be considering countywide reform. Yeah. Because again, it's not saying you can't do it. It's saying we should allow people to build what they right. feel they need. So, um, so for those reasons and probably others, I, I would support one mile for now. I think that Likewise. this deserves coming back to as part of a future's ETA with some other considerations, but I would push for one mile. If I might add a comment for levity, one of the things that I think is uh, interesting in expanding the one mile zone, it does give private property owners more say in the development of their um, real estate and it gives them more individual control. So. You know, there's a there's a um, a trade-off, and I think it's positive for both sides. You, know, you potentially reduce parking, um, you increase the opportunity for housing, and then in turn, you also give more control back to the owner of the real estate. Um, staff is fine with one mile. We would pre prefer to keep this as simple as possible because it's just easier to apply. Uh, so. A one mile straight line distance makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. uh, I will also say to address uh, some of the comments about the provision we, uh, of um, adequate uh, in station access infrastructure, that is of course very important. And most of the, the, the BRT projects and the Purple Line are coming with additional infrastructure. Yeah. The board saw the Beers Mill Road BRT project maybe six months ago that was combined with a bicycle and pedestrian improvements project uh, with some su substantial improvements. The US 29 BRT is, is uh, in effect now, but upgrades are coming both to the transit way and to the pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure. And the purple line is under construction, as we mm -hmm. know right now, and there's a lot of work on projects as part of the purple line to improve walking and bicycling, but also additional projects for, for many of the station areas uh, that are underway, right, separate from the Purple Line that are underway right now to improve 
walking and bicycling. So that mm -hmm. is coming with all of these projects. So I just want to add one more thing, um, because maybe I'm one of the oldest and sitting here. And when you think about the age, people that they retire, retirement age, they downsize from the single family houses and they want to go to the urban areas that they don't have to drive, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, just be able to use all the amenities very easy. So uh, that's why that I want to make sure that for people that are 70, 75, 60, 65, that they may have some uh, less mobility, we should make sure that the walkability is available for those ages also. Um, mm -hmm. If someone wants to move to as a, you know one of these multifamily that I believe many of aging or aging communities baby boomers probably they're going to do that you know eventually you don't want to drive anymore and you want to be somewhere that you have access everything two miles for someone that is at 70 or 75 is a long way until someone that is young and they can walk easily and, you know, right now, to, uh, you know, although I'm getting there, two miles is easy for me, but I know that in five years or so, two miles may be a little bit pushing it. So that's why it's important that how we measure this walking shed, that making it inclusive and accessible for all the ages. We are all young and decide that, okay, you know, changing a quarter to half and then changing it to one mile and everybody can walk. I'm just saying that not everybody, my mom and dad couldn't walk. Yeah. I had to carry them. Okay. Thank you for your comments. So I, uh, I think we're ready. And it, the, I, uh, the, the one mile, uh, I believe, is, is the consensus. And uh, to move forward with, uh, I will say that we're counting on you when we have these projects approved in the future to have these uh, interblock connections so that people <laughs> can can um, travel easily from the project to the local streets and then also there may be potential issues going forward with um, making sure if the I'm sure the developers will build enough parking for their residents so that the there could be potential issues of parking spilling if there's not enough that's spilling in the community and have those concerns so but I'm um, I, we, there's consensus enough to have a motion to uh, to implement your recommendations, uh, but to include the adding the mark station, including a one mile radius, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and then present your general concerns over parking lot districts. So, yeah. Can I move? Then can I move that we? Uh, Are we going to add a note for bringing a CTA that hard to measure? Yeah, um, I think there's a, a two issues that we could, staff could continue to discuss and potentially come back uh, to the board with on okay. a, another ZTA. One of them was about the high frequency uh, local bus service. Mm -hmm. Another one was um, a more general, I think, amendment to the county code about how um, how we are measuring distances. There's more complexity to that than than we've discussed today mm -hmm. that applies to several provisions in the code. Okay, thank you, I'm good then. Okay, uh, so is there anything else? This is, 
I think yeah. these are only two changes, correct? Yeah. All right. Do I have a, mo a motion to approve uh, staff's recommendations um, as noted, including in the green here and taking out the verse half mile? Yeah. <laughs> I'll move that we uh, transmit the comments, uh, staff's recommendations and comments on zoning text amendment 23-A, parking, et cetera, uh, including the addition of the mark station and the one mile radius. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, thank you uh, again for these robust discussions on these ETAs. Thank you. And we'll take just a one minute uh, and we'll go to our last item, which is item number nine, which is a resolution of adoption of the Fairlands and Briggs Cheney Master Plan, where staff is recommending approve the resolution for adoption for transmittal to the full commission and receive briefings on changes made by the plan document after transmittal of the planning board draft to the county council. All right, thank you. Good afternoon. This is our last item of the, of the afternoon uh, of the day. It's item number nine, adoption resolution for the, of the adoption of the Fairland Briggs Cheney Master Plan, where staff is recommending approval of the resolution of adoption for transmittal to the full commission and receive briefing on changes made to the plan document after transmittal of the planning board draft to the county council and Clark Larson from the planning departments here to give this presentation. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Chair, members of the board. Um, again, Clark Larson with Up County Master Planning Division. Um, I am one of the co-leaders of the plan, among others who have come before me. Um, but we're here before you because, as was stated, the county council recently uh, approved a resolution for the final version of the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan. And we are returning to you to uh, approve the resolution for adoption to be sent on to the full commission, which constituent constitutes the Montgomery Planning and Prince George's Planning Boards. So as you'll recall, this uh, update is an uh, amendment to the 1997 Fairland Master Plan, a smaller area of the original plan area, as you see here in the, the black outline. Um, this master plan is the first really more land use oriented master plan that's come before you since the adoption of Thrive 2050. And so this uh, master plan really embraces the goals that are inherent in Thrive and seeks to flesh them out in various recommendations and thinking through how to accomplish these goals in our own master plan recommendations for this portion of East County. Um, the master plan vision for the plan was to establish an evolving and connected suburban corridor with compact activity centers that support a healthy local economy and multicultural community that is socially connected and environmentally resilient, sort of summarizing the, the scope of all the recommendations and sections that are in the plan. Um, and you'll recognize this graphic, as we've shown you before, with the progress of the master plan update. Uh, in red, we're showing the, the end point, uh, just right before approval and adoption, where we are today. But uh, this is the culmination of an effort since about the fall of 2021 uh, to go through a series of community outreach and engagement activities, uh, preliminary recommendations, working draft, public hearings, and so on. So this is really the, the end point of all the public input and uh, staff work and community work that has come before. Um, included in your staff report is the resolution from the District Council and, uh, highlighting all the changes, all the technical changes and text changes, graphic changes that have occurred from the County Council uh, from the last draft that you recommended to them. So I won't go through that entire 12-page resolution with you. Um, also summarized in the agenda are uh, some of these major points. Um, I can read through some of these as summaries, but if, if there's any questions about them, um, if you prefer to hear them one by, one by one versus just ask me questions as you read about them in the report, I'm happy to take any direction you uh, direct. No, this is great. Uh, you can just keep, keep going. We've, we've, we're so proud of this master plan, and um, we'll ask any questions at the end if need okay, be. Okay, that's good. Um, in addition, I wanted to bring forward some if illustrations that you were unable to see in your draft plan. They were unavailable. We had just started putting them together with an illustrator. Um, but these evoke the vision and development, transportation, um, environmental improvements that we expect in some of these corridors. So I'll go quickly through these um, just to show you um, that might be your first um, view of some of these illustrations, but they will be incorporated into the plan. So first is the Briggs-Cheney Road Corridor um, east of US-29. You can see there's um, more mid-rise and high-rise development, infilling some of the properties, uh, more trees, um, structured parking, and so on. So that's our, our visions for establishing the Briggs-Cheney Road Corridor, uh, what we term the main street in the master plan. Um, taking ourselves to, down to the street level, this is on the west side of US-29 at the intersection of Briggs-Cheney Road and Old Columbia Pike. Um, there's a smaller scale of, of buildings and, and heights. Um, 
with more pedestrian infrastructure, so wider sidewalks, uh, more activated sidewalks than exist today, um, and a, a few homes and mixed-use developments filling in some of the gaps here. Um, moving south down, you can see the red star in the plan area where this uh, perspective is. This is looking west along East Randolph Road towards the intersection with Old Columbia Pike. So on the far west, you can see a potential redevelopment at the Seventh-day Adventist World Headquarters, the corner of that property, and just how this intersection could become and, and could be experienced uh, maybe in the 20 to 30 year uh, future as uh, building up from the master plan's vision. Um, now, going back into a drone or as a crow flies here, we're looking down on the Tech Road crossing of US 29. Um, so this is looking a little bit more along the length of the Seventh-day Adventist World Headquarters property of one potential future, um, maintaining their existing building, but maybe filling in some of the, the parking areas and open space areas um, and some of the other properties around that. So uh, really at the Near the intersection, you might see in the red lines, there's uh, bus rapid transit lines here. So this would be one of the focal points of a bus rapid transit station, really trying to establish more um, higher density activated compact areas here. And then coming down to the street level, looking west across US 29 at Tech Road, um, more established and protected bicycle and, and walking and rolling facilities as it crosses US 29, and then um, buildings up to the street, more of a, a compact urban experience here is, is part of the plan's vision. So that's really the presentation that we have. Our, our request for you today is to approve a resolution of adoption for transmittal of the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan to the full commission for review at its meeting, which is scheduled on January 17th, 2024. Thank you very much. Uh, do, do any of the board members have any comments or questions? I have a comment, okay. and uh, I want to commend you on this master plan, um, especially want to commend you on the tour that you organized. Um, I'm very familiar with the Briggs-Cheney area before Route 200 came in and where 29 directly intersected with Briggs-Cheney. I used to go to the Cameron Seafood there and Safeway. I don't know if you guys know if those stores existed or not, but the tour was really well organized, and it put together uh, in my brain, the future of Briggs Cheney, an area of the county that had been neglected. And um, this uh, is to be commended, and I'm very thankful that um, some of my friends and family that live in this area will benefit from um, this master plan. Thanks. And I wanted to echo what, uh, you know, Commissioner Parkley said. I agree. Those, and that was my first tour for the master planning, and it was very useful for me. Uh, so keep those tours going. And frankly, thank you for bringing this as a last item for 2023. That's a very good way to close our year with uh, such a wonderful, and for summer that is really needed. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to end, yeah, this is, uh Wonderful master plan is our first master plan, and it is the first master plan after the adoption of Thrive Montgomery 2050. Uh, the council was so excited about it, and this was in Council Member Mink's um, jurisdiction, and uh, it's it's the real the first development proposed in 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 dozen I mean in decades, and so it's it's so important for the county through all the precepts of Thrive. And so thank you. It's, it was a long process, and you did it. And congratulations. And I'd like to have a motion to approve 
a resolution of adoption for the transmittal of the Fairlands Briggs Cheney Master Plan to the full commission for its review at its meeting on January 17, 2024. I move to approve a resolution of adoption for the transmittal of the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan. I second. All in favor? Aye. 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 The ayes have it. Before we end our, our last uh, board, board meeting of the year, uh, I'd like uh, Ms. Stern to come up, please. And we'd like to give her a small token of our appreciation. Uh, wherever you're like, come on up here. <laughs> Yeah, this is a small token of the commission's office, including the board's appreciation for your dedicated work as being here for several years at the planning department and, and as being the deputy director and over the past year as being the acting director uh, of planning. So, so thank you so much for your, your, your hard work, your long work, your leadership. And we're so excited that you'll be moving on to Prince William as the planning director. Um, thank you so much for your hard work, and thank you. And then, uh, and I, I think you have a green thumb, correct? <laughs> so this is for your new office, office building, and to remind you of all of us, the planning department and the board. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Yes, thank, thank you. you. So the, the board meeting is just ended. Happy holidays to all of you. Thank you.